Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And this is episode 8 of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about Linux and its perpetual improvement. How you doing this week, Richard? Good. Alright, uh, so we got some news this week. Microsoft's been in the news a couple times, and um, we got some usual Ubuntu stuff to talk about. Lots of fun stuff to talk about today. I think we'll just jump right in here. What do you say? Alright. Alright. So our first story this week... Uh, Firefox market share is apparently falling off a cliff. Richard, did you notice that? No. That market... <laughs> I've been basically sticking with Firefox, I kinda, so we'll see. I noticed that it was falling off a cliff, but I also use Firefox. Um, but yeah, you got a couple of Firefox users talking about the story. The former Mozilla CTO, um, Andreas Gal, he made a blog post talking about how he's got the stats to back it up. He's not just claiming this. As you can see by this graph... Uh, Firefox market share plummets right around the recent time. So he's kind of talking about why he thinks that's happening more than whether or not it's happening. Um, and Mozilla knows this, that this is happening because they track data in the form of active daily installs. Now, I uh, basically what happens is every day Firefox phones home for a uh, an update check, basically, and then Mozilla keeps track of how many of them are doing that. Um, a couple notes about this. First of all, it only counts the most recent version of Firefox. So if you're using an older version or an extended support version of Firefox, or even just an outdated, unsupported version, you're not counted in these statistics anymore. Also, I'm not sure if I'm counted in these statistics, because Richard, I don't know about you, every time I start up Firefox on a new computer, it asks, like, choose what I share, right? Like, where you choose whether or not you want to send statistics to Mozilla. I always turn those off. What do you do with those? Yeah, I always have turned that off as yeah. well. And, and I, I'm certainly not counted on Linux because right. it's not the latest version that I'm using. So Yeah, um, yeah, just because of the way that Firefox is set up, Chrome has an auto-updater, Firefox doesn't, and then, um, yeah, Firefox gives you the option to turn off tracking. Chrome doesn't really give you the option to turn off tracking, and even if it did, uh, Firefox users are generally more privacy conscious. So there are a variety of reasons why Active Daily installs may be less than the actual number of Firefox users. Um, that said, the actual number of Active Daily installs is what's going down, so there are less people using Firefox today than yesterday. Um, and yeah, the former CTO, he gave a couple of major reasons this might be. The big points were the rise of mobile and the dominance of Google. And I found myself agreeing with those two points. Uh, pretty well and basically what he's saying is Mozilla has made amazing improvements in Firefox recently but that just doesn't matter in today's browser market. Today's browser market is not about solving engineering problems it's just a monopoly problem with Google monopolizing the browser market. Again I, I don't know what you think about it I think that's kind of true um, and there will be a, yeah. a picture on the, the next page that we talk about for this uh, that kind of demonstrates that kind of thing but for now um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, they currently have 90 million users is how many people are using Firefox right now. Um, Mozilla has been dropping support for older operating systems, older architectures. They don't make a PowerPC version officially anymore. Um, so those users are, of course, not using Firefox anymore because they can't. But, um, you know, Chrome isn't really servicing those older places either, so that's, that's not where those users are going. But yeah, in terms of these two things, the rise of mobile and the dominance of Google, basically, he goes a lot more in-depth into his blog post and if you want more information on this kind of thing, if you're a Firefox user yourself, you should definitely read the blog post. It'll be um, on the show page for this episode. But basically, the rise of mobile, um, people are using either what comes with their phones, like if you're using an iPhone, it's going to come with Safari. If you're using an Android, it's going to come with either the AOSP browser or 
Chrome. Um, so people are just using those, or Firefox for iOS is actually using WebKit anyway, because Apple doesn't actually let you put your own browser engine into an iOS browser. So like Firefox, Opera, those kind of apps on iOS, if you have an iPhone, you're using Safari no matter what browser you're using. Um, you're just using a different frame around it. Now on Android, you can actually be using the Firefox Gecko engine on Android. Um, and it's actually been pro growing pretty consistently. You can see the number of people using Firefox for Android, the activity installs going very steeply up. And I actually really like uh, Firefox for Android. I think it handles tabs a lot better than Chrome does, um, among some other things, like it syncs with my Mozilla account. But yeah, uh, now here's the Google market share thing. Take a look at this, this screenshot here. And actually, it's a variety of screenshots. Um, can you see these, Richard? Um, I'm, yes, I'm bringing it up. So yeah. these are some examples. And by the way, this framing around here, this is a new version of Firefox. This is what the next version is going to look like, or a future version. And basically what this is, I can describe it to you pretty well. Um, they posted screenshots of a few popular websites. You may have heard of these websites. Gmail. Anyone ever heard of Gmail? I use it. Uh, we got YouTube. This episode is going to be uploaded to YouTube. Uh, just Google search itself. Lots of people use Google search. Google Calendar. My entire family uses Google Calendar. Um, and on the top of every single one of these, get Google Chrome is a big banner at the top of Gmail. YouTube. Watch YouTube videos with Chrome at the very top. Um, Google search. Google recommends using Chrome. Try it. And then Calendar, you got to use Calendar offline, upgrade to Chrome. So Google has all of these websites, and YouTube is the one that hits me hardest especially. Like, you can choose not to use Gmail, even though Gmail is really, I think, the best, like, major email. What what email provider do you use for your primary email? Um, well, since mine's just Richard at, like, a custom domain, I end up just having whatever the default one they provide is. Oh, okay. Now, I've got at nerdofthestreet.com, and I use a provider called Fastmail for that. But, yeah, I mean, Gmail... If, if let's say that somebody just walked up to you and said what email provider do you provide let's say like an older person's like I don't have an email address but I want one Richard where where should I go what are you gonna tell them probably Gmail yeah like are you gonna recommend AOL to them you're, no. you're gonna recommend Yahoo like MSN nah. uh, you know you're gonna recommend nah. Gmail um, it's the de facto free email account YouTube is the only video sharing website out there that's viable at all like do you watch videos on YouTube yeah do you watch videos but on I really any don't other like websites on like Vimeo or the other alternatives so yeah uh, do you don't watch anything on the alternatives not really not much yeah like I don't watch anything on Vimeo and Nerd of the Street has a daily motion account um, and we post all of our videos to daily motion in addition to YouTube because I think people should have an alternative if they want to um, so yeah we've got a, a daily motion account and it's monetized and everything but Daily Motion really sucks, and YouTube doesn't. Like YouTube is is the only basically free good video sharing website. And if you go to YouTube on a browser that's not Chrome, you're gonna get banner ads for Chrome. Um, you know, Google does have a monopoly, maybe not over the browser market itself, but they have a monopoly over video sharing. They have a monopoly over free email. Um, basically, I approaching a monopoly on the search market. Um, although they're really screwing with their search algorithms, and sometimes I find myself going to Bing now, uh, surprisingly. Or DuckDuckGo. Uh, yeah, I mean, Duck, yeah. But that also, I think, uses Google Search to get some of its results. I think DuckDuckGo uses Bing. Um, I thought it did. It might use a mixture. I think it uses a mix. But yeah. I personally use StartPage for a lot of my searches, and StartPage uses Google only. 
Um, but yeah, Google's actually been changing their search algorithms, and I have my found myself having to go to other providers for some specific searches. But yeah, Google's got a monopoly on a lot of things, and they're using that to also try and monopolize the browser market. Um, and Richard, you're a web developer, so I've had other developer people talk to me about how Chrome sometimes has features that aren't necessarily standard, and then they end up becoming de facto standards because everyone's developing for Chrome, but then you have websites that don't work as well in Firefox. Is that like, does that happen? So I'm more of a back-end developer, like I don't, I'm okay. not that great with front-end, but um, I actually like Firefox's development tools, which I think is kind of an un, like I feel like a lot of people don't share my opinion on that, Yeah. just because I think the rendering engine for like testing it on mobile mm -hmm. looks much better, and um, I think some of the really advanced tools, I've never had to use some of the really advanced like development tools since I don't go way too deep into front-end that um, say Google Chrome may have over Firefox that I've heard. Yeah. But overall, I still like find Firefox's development tools definitely to be adequate. And I feel like if there's any features you want additionally want, you could always get an extension. But I feel like probably someone who's like really into front end from the opinions I've heard is definitely more into Google Chrome and using that for, I mean, ultimately I have all three kind of major browsers on my computers all the time so that I can test things how they look differently. but. Yeah, like Firefox is still my daily kind of driver. I mean, personally, when I'm, you know, I've got the content management system for nerdonthestreet.com, and I don't do a whole lot of back-end coding on that, but I do mess with the front-end a lot. Um, and when I'm using just, like, Inspect Element, that's like, I don't install developer extensions, but I use Inspect Element a lot. Um, Firefox's Inspect Element, for me at least, is a whole lot slower than the Inspect Element on Chrome. Like, it's just, it works faster in Chrome when I'm making life changes in the Inspect Element box, because that's how, like, you're an actual developer. I, like I said, I just hack on things. So, like, when I go to <laughs> edit the website, like, I'll say, alright, I want this to look different. I'll open up Inspect Element, I'll change things until it looks how I want it to, and then I'll take whatever I did there and put it on the actual site. Um, and then I'll refresh to make sure it matches. But, um, but yeah, it's just the developer console itself works better for me in Chrome. Now that wasn't exactly what I was talking about though. Are there ever times when Google actually puts features into Chrome that are not web standards, but like that you could use as a developer? I don't know exactly um, what I'm talking about here. So if that doesn't happen, you can let me know. But Yeah, there probably has been instances of it, but I wouldn't really know it because I mean, I did a, I've done a lot of Java, but I haven't done a whole lot of like like I wonder if I don't know exactly about this, but originally kind of the sharing location features and sharing video. Yeah. That may have been something that's in Chrome first. Uh -huh. Although I don't I'm not sure if that's true or not. It could have been in another browser first as well. Yeah. But I feel like that was more an HTML five standard and might have been implemented by Chrome yeah. before it was say implemented by Firefox or something. That's true. I just am hesitant to use Chrome because I need my bookmarks synced between different devices. But then I don't want to give all that, like, my history to Google. To Google. Right. But Mozilla is Which fine, is because I trust Mozilla more than I trust Google. Um, so that's why I personally use Firefox. But yeah, you know, I hope Mozilla keeps developing Firefox, because right now it's really the biggest alternative to Chrome and, like, the WebKit browsing engine or WebKit-based browsing engines. You've got, like, Opera, which is proprietary, Vivaldi, which is proprietary, um, but those are still based off of WebKit or WebKit derivatives, whereas Firefox is using Gecko, 
and it's sometimes it's a little it seems like it falls behind um that's the public consensus on things is that sometimes gecko isn't quite up to speed with blink and webkit but it's open source firefox is a completely open source browser and you can't really get another completely open source browser that has advanced features like bookmark syncing and whatnot um, but yeah, if you're into, if you're a Firefox user, you should definitely check out the blog post, because he talks about it, he talks about where's Mozilla going, um, and basically he says, even if Firefox isn't, um, isn't the most popular browser, Mozilla's probably going to continue making it. So yeah, go check that out, that's our first story of the week. Next story is a Skype for Linux story, you want to talk about this, Richard? Alright, so, I don't know if you're able to see my screen right now, but I have this up for it on the primary window. All right. So the bigger one. But um, basically, so Skype has finally, Microsoft has released a new Skype for Linux client update. It's currently kind of in a beta experimental stage, but um, they actually finally added group calls available. And it doesn't say screen sharing, and I haven't gotten to try it yet, but I assume hopefully that's including screen sharing and not just video calling. Because to per like personally me that would make a huge that would be a huge improvement for me because it's kind of hard now to use Linux for development because with my job with the other people I develop the server like a Minecraft server I'm working on with I kind of often need to share screens with them and there was no really share screen support in Linux Skype so that was like a huge drawback and um, it would it's awesome to see that they're finally implementing it since it is in beta and it's still experimental I'm sure there's going to be some bugs they kind of mentioned that but they also um, updated it and made it electron based and updated the back end of version electron they used which is probably going to hopefully be also some additional improvements and it's really like the first time they've released an update in a long time so that should be pretty good and if you use skype frequently um since particularly it needs to it's still a good alternative to discord until discord implements video chat so if you use skype frequently you should probably check out the new update because i know the previous versions were really glitchy on linux for me so should be a big improvement. Hmm. Now, when you say the previous versions were glitchy, are you talking about the previous Electron versions, or are you talking about the previous Qt version? That's I had... think it was the previous Qt version I was using. All right. It so, was whatever was loaded into Ubuntu's repositories by default. Yeah, back in 15.04, right? Ubuntu's. Yeah. Yeah. It might actually have been what was if you got to Skype.com and went. Right. Which um, I think just recommended you go to their repository in. Um, yeah. The Ubuntu software. But center. like, so when Skype discontinued the Qt version and made the Electron version, I was gonna say, well, that must have affected you, but you weren't even happy with the Qt version before that. That didn't work well. Um, I had problems. I can't remember everything I had problems with, yeah. but there were a lot of different glitches, <laughs> certainly right. that I remember experiencing. Interesting. It's been a couple. It's been like a year or so since I actively used it. I didn't really give it a huge second chance after so many problems with it. Yeah. And especially since often when I was using Skype, it would be with friends that I would like normally game with before Discord became like a really well-known thing. Right. And um, that would usually be on Windows anyway. Mm. Yeah. So I, w I found it handy for like messaging people. Like certainly messaging was good on it and that seemed stable in the Qt version, mm -hmm. but it never seemed very stable for calls, let yeah. alone like... I mean, well, I know they never implemented widescreen video calling in this Qt version. But then that was better than no video calling in the Electron version. So nice yeah. that we've got some support back for that. And then, uh, yeah, you can get that over on Microsoft's website. It's Skype 5.4 for Linux Beta is the version. And, yeah, they enabled group video calling. Um, they also fixed some repository keys. So if you've been having problems updating 
um, that's probably why. So yeah, any other thoughts on that? Um, not much. I think it's a good improvement, and I actually want to try it out when I can. All right. Our next story this week is one about Ubuntu. So our first episode ever of this show was huge because we talked about how Ubuntu uh, was no longer going to be coming with Unity. Uh, Canonical discontinued Unity. They discontinued... What else did they discontinue with that? I mean, they basically Unity and all associated pieces. Mirror was the other big part that they discontinued. And uh, yeah, part of the whole Unity thing was that they were working on a new version called Unity 8, and that was going to be the version that worked on Mirror. Um, and it was going to be kind of like Unity 7, except it was going to be Qt-based, I think. Um, and it was going to run on Mirror, and it was going to run on phones in addition to desktops and tablets too. Um, so it was going to be the version that brought all of your devices together. And that was Canonical's vision that they worked on for years before ultimately deciding it wasn't going to happen a couple months ago. So yeah, um, a, a group of people has forked Unity 8. They've taken the code from that. And they have rebranded it. It is called Unit uh, with a Y. I don't, I don't know. You can go to unit.io is the website. And basically, yeah, they've taken Unity 8 and they've packaged it up. I don't know how many improvements they made. And when I tried Unity 8 back in February at System76's headquarters, it was, it was pretty rough. There were still a lot of rough edges on Unity 8. So it was not near finished. Um, so yeah, I don't know how much it has progressed in the next few months, be either before or after it's been discontinued by Canonical. But yeah, you can get it. Uh, packages are available from Unit for Debian and now for Ubuntu 16.04 LTS. They have backported it to that. I'd be interested to see if they're going to support a newer version of Ubuntu, but for now you can get it on 16.04 LTS. And yeah, you can, quote, experience the interface Canonical had previously planned to bring to the desktop edition of Ubuntu. That's a quote from DistroWatch, not a quote from Unit. But I just thought that was a nice way of putting it. So like I said, unit.io is the website. I've got a link to the blog post that will be in the show notes, um, specifically about the new Ubuntu packages. And there are some known issues. Uh, most of the Qt slash KDE applications should not work anymore. Um because the Qt libraries are updated to 5.7, but back in 16.04, you weren't using 5.7 for your Qt, so all the KDE apps were built for older versions of Qt. Um, so yeah, this issue will not be fixed in Ubuntu 16.04, and they say it will probably be fixed later. Uh, proprietary GPU drivers will not work as well, which is already the situation with NVIDIA and Wayland on KDE, but uh, proprietary GPU drivers whether NVIDIA or... Actually, they don't say anything about the AMD drivers. They just say the proprietary NVIDIA drivers don't work with Unity 8 because they probably don't work with Mir, because they don't work with Wayland either, because NVIDIA doesn't play very nice with open source. So yeah, you can go and read that. If those issues don't pertain to you, if you're a gnome person with the open source drivers, grab Unit. You can see what Unity 8 was going to be. It was interesting. Had you ever tried any of uh, Unity 8 out? No, I didn't get the chance to try that out. All right. It was pretty much the same thing. It was kind of... It was a lot more like sidebar panel-based, kind of like Windows 8 was. Like with the charms bar in Windows 8. They kind of... Or kind of like Solus. Um, what's the what's the desktop environment on Solus called? I don't remember. <laughs> huh. Well, looks kind of like Solus, too. So, yeah, there's that story. Any Any other thoughts on that? Oh, no. Not exactly. All right. 
Our next story is about Microsoft's SQL Server 2017, and it's coming to Linux. Richard, do you want to talk about this? Right, so it's on my screen, if you can probably see it, hopefully in Jitsi. But um, basically, Microsoft is making, made it on July 17th, so this is about five days ago, they made their um, first final, first near final public release candidate. So it's kind of the first almost final release candidate, which is pretty good progress on SQL Server 2017. And... Um, one of the main benefits, obviously, in SQL 2017, as was kind of previously mentioned, is that it will be able to run on both Linux and Windows Server, which is kind of a big step forward for Microsoft because that's never really happened before. And uh, they used a technology. Um, they used the Microsoft Research Drawbridge, as they called the technology, that they to bring SQL Server Linux. And basically, it's an adaptation of the um, library OS concept that Microsoft Research did in the past. And they've been working on that for a couple of years. The um, kind of where the technology first kind of debuted in a major way was when they actually brought the Bash shell to Windows 10, which I thought was pretty cool. I haven't gotten to personal, I haven't gotten to experience that personally because I stayed back on Windows 7, mm. but I had seen some people use it um, firsthand, and it was really cool to be able to just have all the features of the Bash shell inside Windows 10 to quickly yeah. access. So also since this is first one major supporting Linux. I think this is kind of, I think this would be a big deal. It should be interesting because it does offer, I think uh, Microsoft SQL Server offers some things that MySQL does not, including, can't think of it for some reason, but I think much better stored procedures. And because um, I believe I worked with the group and they'd had really good stored procedures set up for everything in it. And I've never been able to find some features with that in MySQL at least. And if it is offered, I feel like it's not, quite as prominent and people don't use the um, stored procedures in MySQL because I've never really heard about that. Yeah. So that would be some a big kind of benefit. Also, overall, it looks like it offered some additional features in the um, 2017 release candidate that would be the first time they'd ever had it. And basically, it currently installs on Red Hat um, Enterprise Linux, um, Ubuntu, of course, SUS, and um, it also has a Linux Docker container, which is going to be handy for people who like to just containerize their databases and have them in kind of a separate, tidier system. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much most of the stuff we found in that story, I think. Cool. Yeah, that's a huge step forward for Microsoft. And it's also a big step forward for Linux because um, SQL Server has been something in the past. If you needed those advanced features, you had to use Windows Server. And that's also more expensive, like we talked about last week. Um, and yeah, so now you can get the benefits of Linux while also being able to use. Now, what does it cost to use Microsoft SQL Server? Do you know anything about that? I do not know. I had their light version that I tested a couple times with Windows, ah. but and that was free. But I don't think you can obviously use that in production right. thing without like licensing violations. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. All right. Well, uh, that is out. You can take a look at it on the SQL Server blog. And uh, yeah, first release candidate of SQL Server 2017 now available. Uh, let's see. So yeah, yeah, they market it like, uh, of course, Microsoft markets it like their SQL Server is the only one that you can use for real servers. But yeah, go and check out their blog post over there. They have links to instructions where you can install, like Richard just said, on Red Hat, Ubuntu, SUS, or Docker. So yeah, awesome. And I'll bet it's going to be in the AOR soon, too. Oh, that was kind of a joke, but <laughs> let's see if it's already there. I'll have to check that out. It'll end up in there at some point because everything under the sun <laughs> is on the AUR. Uh, so, yeah, the next story that we're talking about is has to do with containers. And uh, so I probably should have just left it on your screen. Richard, what's our next story? 
All right. So basically, um, Open Container Initiative 1.0 released, and um, they're working on like, and this is kind of the idea of consolidating all the containers. So um, because containers have been around, have been prominent for like two or three years now. For a while, people are trying to get to switch to it. And um, however, there's been some people have been reluctant to, particularly in government, because there wasn't really standards. And the issue was there were the, all these small but kind of but really important differences in every standard, making it kind of very hard to switch in between and to do things on the fly or to just kind of rebuild and get a new container. So um, basically it was slow going and they've been working on this for a while and it appears that most of the open source code came from Docker they were doing. They were using that as the most of the specification but to finally have kind of one standard instead of multiple differences is kind of a big step forward and should hopefully encourage a lot of people both in the industry and government to kind of move forward with using containers which would be a big benefit to things because it allows that a high level of scalability that you can't really get um, in any other way. You can't have an automated system that scales stuff up without really easily using containers. And um, basically a kind of the openness of the specifications because a lot of people got to contribute, a lot of both companies and open source like groups got to contribute. And so it kind of helped, um, it kind of helps fuel innovation and help increase a lot of things that so they um, they were the foundation. Docker's code is foundation for the specifications, mm -hmm. and they were pretty happy with this result, obviously, yeah. since they got to be it. But um, obviously, a lot of others besides them, including um, Red Hat, I don't know how to pronounce that name, and um, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, and Cisco also played some major roles in what they contributed. So that's it's nice to see that there's a standard oh, that, that that's so Huawei. many people got to be involved in creating. Yeah, and um, to see that hopefully it should have a good future and actually become used, yeah. and not just kind of thrown to the side. So, so what exactly? Um, so we've got this this standard put out. What's the standard for exactly? So it's the standard. I feel like I had it highlighted somewhere, but yeah, the standard for um, both the image format specification okay. and the runtime specification. So I guess that um, is both kind of the contents of the actual container, the image of it, and also the runtime. So managing the life cycle of the container, when it stops, when it starts, how it like activates, everything that's, like that. Yeah. And that's pretty much a whole, a standard for the entire thing, which is really useful because it's not just a standard for a piece of it. It's a standard for pretty much right. everything related to containers. That's really interesting. Do you think that it makes sense to have a standard for something that broad? Um, I think it would be a good benefit because one of the biggest things that people use containers for, at least from what I've heard, is for scalability. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, with Netflix and a lot of these big ones, as their traffic increases, they just spin up more containers, and it can like their load balancers can send the messages to it to like initiate more containers to handle more load. Yeah. And when those containers are no longer needed, those containers can be shut down, so to save power on the servers overall. And um, that's something that there's no, without containers, there's no real way to do that. And so, like, having a standard now is a huge benefit because you can wind up running on a lot of different systems. You can have different kind of host operating systems throughout your, like, infrastructure, but they all use the same standard containers, and you don't have to worry about that. So now that Docker's code, for instance, is the foundation for these specs, what's the difference? Like, does Docker still have an edge up against other container systems for any reason? Like, is there still a reason for different container groups like Docker to be still be competing, or are they all basically just going to be using one standard now and they're not really competing anymore? 
Yeah, and that's interesting. I'm not sure exactly. I would imagine that they, then they might try and offer features that are outside the yeah. spec that are more to managing it itself than like the ah. container specification. And um, I guess that's probably where the new kind of area that they'll be competing in. I have not really used anything besides Docker, so it's kind of hard to yeah. know since it's become such a commonly used one, and that's the one I only have experience with, hmm. to know like what the differences between those were prior to it and if they'll kind of maintain those differences after this kind of standardization occurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, this was just released, so yeah, it's a step forward, but it's not. We're nowhere near finished yet <laughs> with this. Kind of, it's just more the first kind of standard and ideas are being put together, and they actually, in a way, that actually work and should definitely start encouraging people who've been staying behind to finally be like, yeah, we need to move forward with this. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. It's also interesting that one of the companies they mentioned, that one you didn't know how to pronounce, that's Huawei, and they've actually made some really nice phones in addition to some smartwatches. Um, so I don't know what they would be doing in the container space, but uh, they're listed right there, right next to Red Hat and Google. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Oracle and Cisco, yeah, your big server players. Yeah, so that's neat. Um, all right. Our next story is Gnome Tweaks has been uh, updated. Well, I just gave it away. It's called Gnome Tweaks now. It's no longer called the Gnome Tweak Tool. And this is really interesting. I think my big takeaway from this story, it's not that interesting if you just think about this as a name change. People change the project name sometimes. But I, it seems like the Tweak Tool is kind of becoming an official supported part of Gnome at this point. Like, would you? how much do you follow this kind of thing? Not a whole lot. I don't I, use... So, Gnome, like, I, so we had a discussion now, with, with Random Dude in our chat room a few weeks back um, where we were talking about the GNOME Tweak tool and how, like, a lot of GNOME users, after GNOME 3 happened, now you're on Mate right now, so did you ever use yeah. GNOME 3? I feel like I did for a very short time, but not enough to really right. have a, a good impression of it. Were you ever using GNOME 2 before Mate? Um, when I tested, like, Linux a long time ago, but okay. I wouldn't have quite I probably understood All right. the so you didn't like stuff. you didn't hate GNOME 3 and go to Mate, you just happened to land on Mate. I just liked the look of Mate originally okay. a lot more. Yeah, because that's what GNOME 2 was like, was like Mate as a continuation of GNOME 2, but the GNOME 3 was completely different, extremely simplified, didn't have a whole lot of configuration options. So the GNOME Tweak Tool was one of the first things that came out that a lot of GNOME users said, I can use this now because I've got all these tweaks I can make. Uh, and it's things like installing extensions was something you could originally like pretty much only do through the Tweak Tool. User themes were originally only supported through the Tweak Tool. You couldn't really, well, supported... Um, you can really apply user themes easily without the tweak tool. Changing the size of your, your top bar on GNOME, adding the minimize button back because GNOME 3 has no minimize button. A lot of people want minimize buttons. Um, so that kind of thing you could only do with the GNOME tweak tool. But what I was talking about with, with one of our viewers a few weeks back was if the GNOME developers wanted all these things in GNOME, on the one hand, why wouldn't they just put these in the system settings? Why put this in a separate tool? called the GNOME Tweak Tool, if the developers want this in, they could just put it in the settings. On the other hand, if they didn't want this stuff in, you know, the GNOME Tweak Tool doesn't just recompile GNOME to add minimize button support. Like, this stuff has to be in yeah. the code already, it's just hidden, and the GNOME Tweak Tool exposes that stuff. So yeah, it's really interesting, like, is the GNOME Tweak Tool a an official thing? Is it unofficial? And this name change really pushes it more towards official, because, like, GNOME's naming scheme these days, they've got GNOME files, They've got GNOME Web, they've got GNOME Software, um, GNOME Games, and now they've got GNOME Tweaks. Uh, it goes along with their naming scheme of like sim single word 
very simple definitions of the software is the name of the software. So yeah, it's going to be GNOME-Tweaks if you're looking for um, for the GNOME Tweak tool either in your package manager or if you're trying to start it on your system, be aware it will change to GNOME-Tweaks, plural, instead of GNOME Tweak tool, which it currently is. Um, and this is going to come starting with GNOME 3.26. It is going to come with some new tweaks as well, such as a battery percentage tweak and a disable while typing tweak. That pro sounds like it might have to do with a touchpad disable while typing. And uh, yeah, it adds a number of other under the hood changes. For instance, the app was ported to Python 3. I guess before it was using Python 2, so that's nice that it was ported. Um, yep. No yeah, tweaks. Python 2 is pretty old, so that's yeah. good. It's yeah. finally moved over. Uh, I don't know for sure it was Python 2, but that's, I don't know, it could have been uh, conceivably. But it, now it's Python 3 for sure. It also uses the Mason build system. Do you know what that is? No. Neither do I. So we won't worry about it. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. extensions page on the tweak tool also receives some UI tweaks, including a blank slate option where you, I guess that would be if you're looking to take all your extensions off or something. Um, but yeah, GNOME tweaks won't allow you to install or uninstall extensions anymore. Now, like I said, when GNOME 3 first started out, extensions were a little bit unofficial. And if you wanted to do that, you had to do it through GNOME tweaks. Now, starting with this next version of GNOME Tweaks, that functionality is moved over to the GNOME Software Package Manager, which is GNOME's official package manager. So they're moving functionality out of the Tweak tool into official programs, um, which gives me the impression that GNOME Tweak is an official program. But they don't advertise this with GNOME. It doesn't come with GNOME, uh, like software and web and everything else comes with GNOME when you install it. Just like KDE has like KDE Discover that comes with KDE, GNOME comes with the, the system settings, but it doesn't come with the tweaks tool as far as I know. Um, but yeah, it seems like it is becoming an official thing. So if you're a GNOME user and you haven't used tweak tool, you should definitely look into it. It's definitely worth it. I definitely used it back when I used GNOME. And uh, yeah, if you're not a GNOME user, don't worry about a thing. So our final story this week, did you have any other thoughts on that? Um, not a whole lot since I'm still on Mate, but yeah. I'm still kind of thinking about the desktop environment I want to switch to when I upgrade finally. Yeah. But... I'm still thinking about like um, Plasma. This yeah. We were talking about last yeah. Week. What I like about Plasma is that it's got more options. It's got like five times as many options as are in this tweak tool, and they're all officially supported options in the regular system settings. So I don't have to install extensions and tweak yeah. tools and things just to get my desktop to behave the way I want. That's why I use Plasma personally. Um, but some people like simplicity, and GNOME is going for that. And it seems uh, to almost go against the idea. Seems almost go against the idea of kind of Linux with one program doing something well, because clearly they do have to have those features in, as you were saying, and they have another feature, modify settings, that are already built into the original. It seems kind of an odd approach. Well, it kind I mean, of, it would just when you put like it that way... Have an advanced menu versus, like, simple. When you put it that way, I mean, the the Linux, the Unix philosophy of have one prog have a program do one thing and do it well, I, I interpret that to be, like, if it's doing several things do split that out into several programs so that it's separated um, and more organized. And when you put it that way, it kind of makes sense that, like, system settings is more for things like user accounts, um, desktop backgrounds is in system settings, but then the tweak tool is for, like, GNOME shell customization, such as extensions. I guess I can kind of, well, except now extensions are going to be in the software center, so that doesn't really... I don't know. And, like... 
I mean, all that stuff has to be in GNOME, so... Yeah, I don't well, know, it seems weird to have another program yeah. <laughs> control all the stuff that's in GNOME separately, yeah. just if you want to do it's that. It's basically but. a secondary control panel for advanced features, but, um, yeah, I think they're trying to make it less confusing. I think this name change is part of that, like I said. So, yeah, um, our last story of the week, and this is one that was just put up yesterday, Quapzilla, is that how you say this, do you think? Uh, better, any better guess than I have. Yeah, so uh, Quapzilla, the QT web that. browser, finally adds a session manager. And the reason I threw this story in is because I hadn't heard, I, I think I had heard of Quapzilla. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a file, like a FileZilla type thing. But have you ever heard of Quapzilla? No, not until I read the article it, briefly, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a QT-based web browser, and I've actually got it installed. I installed it today. Got it right here, and it looks super nice on Plasma because it's QT, so it integrates with my Plasma theme. Uh, now the tabs look a little strange, and um, you know when I let's say in Firefox, or I'm sorry, this is Chromium right here. Like obviously Chromium's got its own themes going on inside of the program. Uh, Quapzilla actually like all of these panels, drop-down menus. These this looks like a Caden Live type drop-down menu, you know. All my the color theme is the same, the fonts are the same as the rest of my system. So like, from that perspective, this is awesome. Um, the, this there's this web browser that basically it's a it's a quote unquote QT web browser. I read that as KDE web browser, um, even though you could also use this on LXQT or other QT desktop environments. KDE used to have a web browser called Conquer. Did you ever use that? I've heard of it. I've never used it though. Yeah, it was a really old web browser called Conquer, and it was so bad that the person who introduced me to Linux um, actually told me Conqueror is a file browser, not a web browser, is what they told <laughs> me. Um, but then the, there was Reconk, which was an attempt to take Conqueror and like remake it into something more usable, but it never really took off. I, I, I guess there were people who used Conqueror, and there were people who used Reconk, um, just like there are some people who use Quapzilla, but I could, I'm really, I'm going to keep this installed for a bit. Um, you know, it, I tried it out a bit. I went to my own website with it and some other websites I browsed around. It's a pretty fast browser. Um, you know, there's no smooth scrolling, so that makes it feel faster, I guess, than like Firefox or Chrome. But, um, yeah, things load pretty fast and everything works out of the box. I mean, you can play videos and stuff without any problems, which like Opera sometimes has problems with video on Linux. So, you know, this is a Linux browser. I think you can get it for Windows and Mac OS too, but it's a QT browser, so it's going to work fine in Linux. But yeah, Quapzilla is uh, really interesting. It integrates so well into the Plasma desktop. Now, the only reason I'm not switched over to it already, just based on all those good things I just said, by the way, it's a WebKit-based browser as well, and it is completely open source, um, but yeah, it's using WebKit, not Gecko, which is what Firefox uses. So it's it's a little bit more like Chromium, a little bit better performing than Firefox. Yeah, I I don't know. What what do you think based on everything I've described to you about Quapzilla so far? I mean, it, it certainly sounds interesting. I guess I'd give it a try. Yeah, I mean, you're on Mate, so a QT app probably isn't going to make as much sense for you as it does for me. Yeah. But yeah, for me personally on KDE already, I was really excited to see Quapzilla. Um, still some rough edges, like some buttons and things, just spacing feels a little bit off sometimes. But um, the only big thing keeping me from switching to it right now is that I do heavily, heavily use bookmark sync uh, and history sync and open tab sync, not only between my laptop and other computers, but also to my phone and my tablet, which there's no Android version of Quapsilla as far as I know right now. 
Um, but yeah, Quabzilla.com is the website, and you can download it. Um, you can get it for yeah Mac OS and Windows and any Linux or BSD distro. But yeah, uh, the new version of Quabzilla it's coming out in August. It is going to have some new features that are kind of neat. You will be able to uh, create, delete, rename, and switch between multiple different browser sessions. And that's interesting because have you ever had just like so many tabs open that you're just like, I need to close some of these, but I don't want to like get rid of these tabs because I want them at some point. Um, yeah. So then you end up with a thousand bookmarks. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. I don't know. And maybe folders if I'm feeling particularly if, adventurous if that I've day. Got I extra, label everything. If I've got extra time, I'll throw it in a folder. Yeah. But yeah, I, otherwise I, it just ends up a mess. I've got. I'm the kind of person you saw last week when Firefox accidentally started. It opened up a thousand tabs, and then I've got probably ten thousand bookmarks. Because, um, like I said last week, I did I tell you this how I used to bookmark every single web page I went to. Yeah, I think yeah, you did. But I told you, you about can that. Always it for stream. So yeah, um, I I need that bookmark sync. But aside from that. This, this browser session feature that they're adding, this is going to be cool because let's say that you're working on one project like rolling release, or actually we'll go the other way around. Say I'm just doing my day-to-day -day browsing with my 30 tabs open. Um, it's a light browsing day, so I only had like 30, 35 tabs. So then <laughs> I decide it's time to work on rolling release. I want a fresh slate. I don't want any of these tabs open distracting me, but of course I want to be able to come back to them. I can open up this browser session manager, create a new browser session, and then it'll save all of my tabs into one browser session. I can start a new one with no tabs just for rolling release, open up like eight articles, switch to my other browsing session. So, and then like during a show, when it's time to do a show, rather than having to completely switch browsers, like right now I have to close Firefox and open up Chromium when it's time to start doing this show, I could just switch browser sessions at the start of a show and all of my tabs will be saved but locked away, you know, you know, stored away neatly in a session manager and not getting in my way. Um, and then I can, you know, open up new tabs during the show without having to worry about what I'm going to do with them after because I can just save them in a session. Uh, this is a feature, um, I wouldn't have even thought of this feature. Like, I don't know of any other browser that really has this other than Vivaldi has something like this. But, um, but yeah, the, the bug request requesting this feature, I guess that makes it a feature request, but it was on the GitHub issue tracker, was opened in 2013, February 14th, 2013. So you can go there. And I finally got around to it Surprisingly, Surprisingly small amount of comments, considering how long it took them. Um, only eight participants in this thread here, and there are some other people that got linked to it in 2013, 2014. Um... Looks like they... Someone commented that it made it to the um, article. <laughs> you made it to OMG Ubuntu with this two days ago, yeah. Um, so yeah, awesome on... I'm sure whoever submitted that feature request two years ago, this person, I'm sure they were like, after a year, I'm sure they were like, wow, this is never happening. You know, Quapzilla yeah. sucks. But now, I, uh, you know, hopefully this word will get back to them that their feature got implemented. Um, that's really cool. They did say it was planned a day after, like, the guy responded saying, session management is planned. Oh, we'll get did to they? it in four years. That's <laughs> nice, because, see, Vivaldi always says browser sync is planned. Like, that's why I can't switch to Vivaldi as well. They say, oh, browser sync, it's planned. We'll get it someday. Um, and they've been saying that for years, so maybe they'll get browser sync soon. But, yeah, Vivaldi is, is uh, proprietary. Quapzilla is open source. Um, I'd really love it if I could sync 
my bookmarks from this to like Firefox on my phone, but I know that's like never, that's not a thing that can happen. But um, <laughs> yeah, there are also some other new features coming to Clubzilla. It'll be version 2.3 coming out next month, like I said. The browser now integrates nicely when using Pulse Audio playback streams. Uh, I'm not sure what was not nice about it before, but maybe it'll separate different tabs out into different Pulse Audio streams. Um, but yeah, there's also going to be a tab manager. Chrome already does that, right? Chrome already does what? Yes, Chromium. Um, switches separate tabs into sw- um, separate Pulse Audio streams. Yes, it does. I don't think Firefox does, although I'm not 100% sure. Um, but yeah, Grease Monkey is a, a, a plugin. It looks like it allows you to customize the way web pages display by using small bits of JavaScript. Um, the Grease Monkey plugin has been improved for Quapzilla. 2.3 and issues with setting initial zoom on web pages has been resolved so that's cool and like i said that will be released in august shortly after qt 5.9.2 is released and you can install the current stable version of quepzilla on ubuntu um, 17.04 from the software center or uh, if you're on arch you can just do apt-get quepzilla or i mean apt-get you can do pacman-s quepzilla on arch and install the latest version of course so yeah, but not 2.3 yet. It's not out yet. It will be out next month. And you can also get it at Quapzilla.com. Any other thoughts on that, Richard? Um, no, I think it's actually a cool feature, though, because I've never really heard of a session manager yeah. kind of existing. And like now it's kind of a feature I actually like feel like I'd want. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I can think to it when I was using Vivaldi, it has a thing where you can save all of your tabs like easily just by right-clicking and doing like, save all tabs, that kind of thing. But yeah, session manager definitely sounds super like doing a show sounds like a mo- like a great use of that for me personally because I don't like to have to worry about all the other tabs I have open when I start a show uh, but then I want to be able to get back to them easily so yeah that is cool um, and yeah that's all the news we have for this week if you have any news stories that you want to suggest go to nerdonthestreet.com we've got a forum section uh, specifically for this show rolling release and so you can go to that website um, leave your stories that you think we should talk about as forum topics, and then we will cover them. Uh, that's nerdonthestreet.com, or there's also a link to that at rr.nots.co. For now, though, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with a discussion on Ubuntu Snaps. All right, and we are about to have a little discussion on universal app formats and Ubuntu Snap packages, but first, Richard, have you heard about the Nerd Club? No. No, you have not. All right, well, let me tell you about it then. The Nerd Club is a way people can give back to Nerd on the Street if they enjoy our content, like this show, Rolling Release, our creative shows like Displaced, or even just our regular old technology videos that we make. If a Nerd on the Street video has ever been entertaining or helpful to you, you should definitely think about joining the Nerd Club. It's only $3 per month. And for that, you can get access to the live stream DVR. You can see conversations me and Richard are having behind the scenes here because nobody's watching live right now so like nobody you could be the only person ever to see those behind the scenes conversations by joining the nerd club and watching the live stream dvr recording you can also access the members only area on our website you can talk to other nerd club members there are a few of them now and they're pretty cool people uh you, you can go to our website and the banner ads will be removed uh that's pretty cool now for right now you'll still have video ads because right now all of the videos on our website are youtube and daily motion embeds but richard guess what 
What? There's a, a little thing we're planning. If you go over to our Patreon page, which, by the way, is one of the two convenient ways you can join the Nerd Club is through our Patreon page. If you join through there, we are waiting until we get $100 per month through Patreon. We're up to $26. That's over a quarter of the way there, and I, I think we're going to get there eventually. Once we get to $100, we are going to have ad-free videos on our website. Uh, and that won't just be for Nerd Club members, that'll be for everyone. We could have ads for non-Nerd Club members after that, but that'd be a lot of work. Um, but yeah, once we get to $100 per month, uh, you know, I don't want to rely on ads for the whole company. So if we can get enough Nerd Club members to where they're covering what we would be making off of ads anyway, we might as well just let people watch without ads. So yeah, if you want that... Head on over to nerdclub.nots.co, join through the Patreon page, help us reach that goal to remove the ads from our videos. Uh, but even right now, if you're logged in on the website, you won't have banner ads if you're a Nerd Club member. Um, you can also get a custom Discord role, and uh, I don't know, Richard, do you, you into Discord roles? Um, a little. A little bit? I, cool. uh, I mean, I've got the staff on role stuff. on our very own Nerd on the Street Discord server. I don't really, I'm not into roles on other servers that much. But, um, yeah, you can get a cool role. We can also, sometimes, we send out free merchandise to our Nerd Club members. We have done that in the past, and we might do that again in the near future. So, yeah, nerdclub.nots.co. Like I said, it's $3 per month. Let's say you don't want to join through Patreon. Like, let's say that one specific video helps you. We had a conversation, a video that you really liked, or let's say that... Uh, for instance, you watch the How to Repair MP4s video and you want to say thank you for showing me how to repair my broken MP4 video that contained priceless memories that I never could have gotten without watching your video on how to repair it. Uh, but you don't want it to be a lifetime commitment. You just want a one-time thank you kind of thing. You can also join the Nerd Club prepaid for either six months or one year. And that is either $18 or $36 respectively because it's the number of months times $3 per month. So yeah, nerdclub.nots.co, like I said, and a big thank you to all of our Nerd Club members for supporting our content. All right, and Richard, our discussion this week is on something that I was going through last week, so hopefully I can make this at least a little interesting to you. Um, you're using Ubuntu right now, right? Yes. Have you ever used any other distros? Um, not much. I use CentOS. Um, okay. Seven right. wants to set up a server, okay. and it was not an enjoyable experience. But that was just because I didn't have that much knowledge, right? With specific you know, setup stuff on that. Okay, but on the desktop side, you've never used like Fedora, OpenSUSE, Arch, anything that no. wasn't Ubuntu spin. All right. Um, so I have been using Arch for a couple years now, and uh, I started off on a distro called Antergos, and it basically takes Arch and it makes it easier to use. Then I transitioned into full Arch when I got this laptop. Um, almost a year ago. And the reason I like Arch is because it's a rolling release. Uh, you can tell by the name of the show that I think rolling releases are cool. And what a rolling release means is you're stuck on Ubuntu 15.10 uh, right now, which means yeah. all the software that you have is the version that came out October 2015, right? Yeah. Yeah. So with Arch, it would be impossible to get stuck on a several year old version because with Arch, all of your packages continuously receive updates every time the program gets updated. So when the developer updates the program, you immediately get it. You don't have to wait for a six month, uh, six month checkpoint. You don't have to wait for it to go through really 
a whole lot of testing at all. There is some automated testing that happens to make sure it won't break your system, but for the most part, if a developer decides to publish an update, you get it. That's why I like Arch. Now I recently, um, last week I had switched over to KDE Neon, which is a, it's not technically, they, they, they don't call it a distribution, they call KDE Neon a software stack. It's really a distribution, but KDE Neon is a distribution just for KDE software. And it is built on Ubuntu 16.04 LTS, but then it's got rolling release for KDE and QT packages only. So if you can wrap your head around that, they've got long-term okay. support base that never gets updated other than security updates. And then they've got constantly updating desktop packages, but only for KDE, like Firefox out of date, OBS out of date, Kaden Live up to date yeah. because it's a KDE app. But that's kind of how that was going. So um, the reason I switched was because Arch does not include debug packages. Do you know what a debug package is? Um, I think, yeah, I actually learned it from you when you briefly explained it in oh, episode okay. six. Yeah, so... But yeah, it was the idea that it can... It has a special, uh, like, additional information to give you a full kind of trace of the, what occurred. So yeah, I mean... For as a developer, easier. Yeah, as a developer, I'm sure you know what a backtrace is probably better than I do. Do you know what a backtrace is? Um, like, no, I've done more Java, so... Okay, yeah, the I way, the way I understand it is that a backtrace is, like, it's it's things that were in your memory when an application crashed. Uh, or it's it's showing you, basically it's it helps the developer track down the piece of the code that crashed your program when your program crashes. So let's say that the entire KDE Plasma desktop environment crashes and I want to help the KDE developers by submitting a bug report. What the KDE developers have asked is if you submit a bug report, please include a useful stack trace with it. And when they say useful stack trace, that's not a superfluous word. That is a word that actually means something. Because if you don't have developer, if you don't have debug packages enabled, your stack trace is going to be useless because it's going to say this class in question mark, this class in question mark, this piece of code in question mark. And then that doesn't help them track it down because it's just a bunch of question marks. The debug package includes symbols in it that link different things together behind the scenes so that when you go to get a backtrace, it can actually figure out where all of the code is coming from, what files the problem code is in so that the developers can track it down very easily compared to if you don't have that. So I decided... So you've used, huh? you've used stack trace and backtrace interchangeably there? I've never actually heard the term backtrace, so... I didn't, I didn't say... I didn't try to say stack trace. Did I say stack trace? Yeah. Okay, well, backtrace is what I meant. And if okay. there's such a thing as a... I, I know that stacktrace is a word. I was talking about a backtrace specifically. Because a backtrace... Maybe the difference is this. I know that a backtrace is like when you're doing it for a crash that has already occurred. Maybe a stacktrace is more like if you're going into it like I'm going to generate a stacktrace. And then if it's like, oh, my program crashed, let me see if I can recover a backtrace. I'm just making that up because I don't actually know what the differences are, but... You can Interesting. do research. Wikipedia seems to imply they're interchangeable. Does it? In computing, a stack trace, also called a stack backtrace or a stack trace back, is a report of the active stack frames at a certain point in time during the execution of a program. Okay. Cool. All right. So, yeah, that makes sense. So, it's the same concept as what I'm more used to in Java with developing things, where you see the stack trace that has basically every method that was run in what classes up until that point, and you know exactly. You know, you can tell exactly what had been run prior to that, and that gives you a better idea 
of what situations were going on before the method that actually had problems run. Okay. So similar to what I said, but you used more accurate words because you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So the reason I switched from Arch to KDE Neon is because Arch does not provide debug packages at all. Uh, you can get debug packages for things by compiling them yourself through the Arch build service with debugging enabled. But when Arch compiles the packages for you to download, because Arch is a binary distribution, even though uh, most of the packages in Arch are open source, it's a binary, you download binary packages when you're installing them. Um, you're not compiling everything yourself like you would on Gentoo or something. Yeah. Um, that makes it, I guess, more convenient. They download faster and it gets done faster, but it makes it also, you have less control and flexibility. Right. Certainly with something as big as having debug packages. And the reason why they don't ship debug packages by default, now you can tell me if I'm incorrect. I, I know one reason they don't ship them by default is because they're actually bigger, like more megabytes on your hard disk stored long-term if you've got the debug packages installed. But I don't think it actually slows it down. I don't think it actually uses... Does it use more RAM to run with debugging than without? I would imagine not, but I can't be positive right. on that. I, I I'm kind of curious. Go ahead. I guess this is actually the end. Most of the stuff's probably being written in like C or C++ or Python, not Java. And thus, I think it would be kind of a little different than what I'm thinking with along the lines of Java. Yeah. So I guess they have some way of figuring out, which that's pretty interesting how you would figure out in the, in the binary where it executed to cause the problem. I'm not sure exactly how that's done. Yeah, me neither. But, but obviously it would probably take a lot more space to include the information to be able to translate that into something meaningful. Yeah. And to be able to tell them exactly what files with problem ones. Mm -hmm. Now here's my personal opinion on this. Is I think that Arch should ship all packages with debugging enabled. What do you think of that? Just saying that with no qualifiers. Um, It's probably a good idea, I guess, if you have it pre-compiled as a binary. Or they should just offer both binaries. Yeah, pre-compiled. That's what most packages now, like Ubuntu. What they do is rather than offering a debug-enabled, debug-disabled package, they have a debug-disabled package, and then they have a install this to add on debugging to it. So it's like an on top of you install both. You can't just install the debug packages on like Ubuntu or OpenSUSE, but you have to install the regular one, and then also the debug one is in addition to that. Um, now I. I tried going to OpenSUSE Tumbleweed before I went to KDE Neon, and Tumbleweed, really, it was a bad rolling distribution because it was rolling, but it was like a week behind Arch on everything. Why, if, if you're going to be rolling, commit to the rolling. Like, <laughs> yeah. don't, they, they, the reason... Don't delay it. Yeah, I was, I downgraded my version of KDE Plasma going from Arch to OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, and the version that I had already been using on Arch was in testing for OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. It's like, I was already using this, and now I'm on an older version. And so then I was having problems with the older version, couldn't get the update because it was still in testing, decided that OpenSUSE Tumbleweed wasn't for me. So I installed uh, KDE Neon, got an even newer version than Arch even had, um, although Arch had updated like within a day of the new version coming out to Neon. But yeah, when I was on OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, though, I tried installing debug packages for everything. OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, there's an option in Yast, which if you haven't used it before, OpenSUSE has a great system management tool called Yast. And there's an option in there that says install all debug packages. And what it does is it searches the repositories for everything you currently have installed dash debug and installs it all automatically now it actually took like a while to download that 
So I can see that it actually does add on a significant amount of stuff. Um, well, particularly when you're downloading everything that you yeah. unpack just for everything at once. Yeah. Um, like, I see Tumbleweed's point to a certain thing with um, having a week delay, but I feel like they should definitely have an option to disable that week delay. The week delay is a great idea when there's a problem in the new version. The week delay yeah. is a, a deal-breaker when there's a fix in the new version. Because that's <laughs> the problem I was having, was Arch was having a crash... I was trying to help debug the crash. They said, oh, your stack trace is useless. You're on Arch, so we can't look into this. I was like, all right, I want to be a good person and help the developers, so I'll switch to OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. And then I was having a similar crash, but then when the fix got pushed out, I the KDE Neon, the fix worked. But then OpenSUSE didn't have the fix because it was in testing, so I was having these crashes, and I'm like, I could not be crashing right now, but you're testing the fix. Um, so, so that means every bug, that means every bug, you have a week until essentially it gets fixed, even if they fix it the next day. Right. Which you takes still away have to wait another week to get the fix to the bug. Yeah. Whereas, That's kind of frustrating. Yeah. In, in Arch, I, sometimes there are bugs in Arch, but then I know, like, oh, I'll wait a day. Somebody is going to be reporting this and it'll be fixed. Um, so, yeah. Long story short, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed didn't work. Went to KDE Neon, which is based on Ubuntu. Now, last week, you remember I was talking about how. Ubuntu 16.04 is from April of 2016, right? Yeah. Yeah. So all of my programs, I had just downgraded over a year, except for the KDE programs. Kaden Live, still up to date. Um, <laughs> KWrite, still up to date. Console, still up to date. Firefox, downgrade. Um, Standard Notes, not in the repositories. Rocket Chat, not in the repositories. Discord, not in the repositories. Um, so I was having to install Blender massive. Well, Blender was pretty out of date. Um, I had to install all these third-party PPAs for a lot of these programs. Um, like Blender, Blender didn't even have a third-party PPA. I just had to download the source. Actually, Blender provides an executable you can download from their website. Most people don't. Yeah, Telegram. I had to install a third-party PPA. But for some of these programs, there were also snap packages available. Um, and there were some snap packages available for programs that didn't have third-party PPAs, but they did have, like, I think Blender you can get in a snap, but you can't get it through a PPA. You can get it through a snap, or you can download the executable and deal with it yourself. So a snap package, do you know what a snap package is? Um, I'm trying to think. Which one was it? It's one that's more an alternative that you can just... Yeah. It installs, but it's not the portable type, right? Right. So it's not portable. It, portable you, what you do is you install SnapD, which is basically a oh, package okay. manager, and then you use that to install Snap packages. And then the Snap packages, um, they are containerized, and they update independently of your system. They include all of the necessary libraries, so you don't have to worry about dependencies. You just install the Snap. And it's really weird when you're dealing with this on a server because, like, Rocket Chat I've got running on a snap. And, you know, SystemD, um, when you do SystemCTL enable blank, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. So instead of, like, SystemCTL enable Rocket Chat, it's like SystemCTL enable snap dot Rocket Chat dot MarioDB. Like it, so they're it, all like a subsidiary kind of. Yeah, of it, it sets it up in a really weird inceptiony way where it's like there's it's adding layers to systemd, which is, you know, adding complication yeah. for me. But um, 
I was looking into using Snaps for my desktop apps because I've got it installed for Rocket Chat. The one reason I don't want to use Snaps for my desktop applications, Richard, you're on Windows 10, right? Seven. Seven. Why aren't you on Windows 10? Yeah. I missed the free year update because I <laughs> like there were so many bugs with the um, there were so many bugs with the graphics drivers I first heard that I didn't want to do it the first couple months. Okay, so graphics so drivers is what did it with like, you? Yeah. All right. Um, I know one thing you had to have heard about with Windows 10, the forced updates, like where it wasn't letting you... Yes, that was another reason I didn't want to. There were also the privacy concerns. Kind right, of. well, privacy concerns, of course. I yeah, completely agree with you there. The, now, the forced updates, I really want to focus. Thing, like, but oh, I'm sorry, what was that? That's always kind of a thing with Microsoft. Yeah. That was the privacy compromise. I want to focus on the forced updates specifically. Um, so there have been videos online of like, streamers in the middle of a of an mlg video game round and then their computer tries to do an update on like shuts their stream down or like people trying to render a an hour-long video out it's taken hours they're halfway through and then windows shuts the computer down to install updates um so that was actually like the forced updates were an aspect of you not wanting to go to windows 10 um yeah what if i told For you one... that you had mandatory had to install all updates the day they came out. Um, how does it do it? Is the real question? Does it interrupt your workflow? Because Windows kind of always interrupts your workflow. It's a good question. It does it. That's a good question. Um, what if I told you you could postpone them if it would interrupt your workflow, but only for a month? And after a month, it is mandatory. Program won't open anymore if you don't update within a month. Okay, if it's just the program won't open anymore, then I just restart it. Because if it's not interrupting the workflow, then I'm more I'm more willing to accept that. You would be willing to accept that? I was just that? tired. Yeah. I'm not. And <laughs> it's out of it's it's a it's a philosophy thing. I don't blame you for being willing to accept that. I'm not. And this is a an argument I got into with some people online about snap packages this week. So I was looking into using snap packages for my desktop and I knew from the rocket chat snap package that when I installed rocket chat via snap, I used to install it manually and then I switched it over to snap. I made a video about it on the tech channel. Um, I knew that snap I packages, I actually saw that video. Yeah, I knew snap. Yeah. Cause it was switching from DigitalOcean to Linode as well. I knew snap packages updated automatically. And at the time there was no way to turn that off. And I had talked to people about this at System76, and some of those people told me, oh yeah, that's in development, but they, they haven't added that feature yet, but I think they're planning on it maybe. People there at System76 didn't really care too much about being able to turn auto-updates off, uh, but they understood where I was coming from, sort of wanting to turn them off. And I went and looked, and there's still not a way to turn off auto-updates today on Snap packages. As of today, um, Snaps will try to update as soon as they receive an update. Now, if you have the app open, there may be some things where it, it tries not to update as long as you're using it. Like if you're in Spotify listening to music, it's not going to update if it stops your music to do that. Um, but like if you just shut your computer down and turn it back on, you, your snap packages are going to be updated right now. Um, now I looked up a thread, a forum thread on snapcraft.io. It's forum.snapcraft.io. It's a nice discourse website. And somebody said, I really need some way to disable the automatic updates of snaps from the store. And this was a, a actual developer requesting this. And um, people were telling him how to refresh, how to 
set a schedule for refreshing. So it is built in where you can set a set time. Like I only want you to update between 3 and 4 a.m. Um, so that your computer can do it overnight when you're not using it. And eventually, one of the developers of Snaps actually came in and said, the issue that makes us resist the idea of simply disabling updates altogether is that very often that will mean never update rather than update at someone's discretion. And then we're getting back to quote unquote some of the problems that got us here in the first place. So what they're saying right there is that they think if they give users the option to not auto update, there will be people out there who never update. What do you think about that? You I mean, agree I can definitely that? see that. In some ways, I can definitely see that being true. Like on certain things like a server. Yeah. Like if someone has, say, a VPS server running, mm -hmm. that's something that someone, if they're just running it on their own, like I could occasionally forget to update my VPS server, but I like the idea that, say, my SQL will update if there's a vulnerability. Oh, no. And I won't have to even think about it. Yeah. Like, because certainly security reasons, that could be good. But, and... Of course, it is debatable. It's a it's a pretty big debate either way because I feel like you shouldn't be forcing someone to update if there's a if the update is good or if there's some issues with it. Particularly if you're doing it within one day, you could really ruin someone's workflow. Yeah. Or just and not giving the user that level of control. And that like maybe it would be good if they allowed it like by default and then allowed people to change it and allowed maybe even people to change it on specific applications. Yeah. Like one thing would always keep update like MySQL right. yeah. or other things might not like say Cake Live if you wanted to, if there was an issue or you just were used to the older version and wanted to stay on that. Uh-huh. And I want to be clear. I also I'm... want to mention that um, Random Dude has been talking in the chat a fair amount. <laughs> I feel like we have not noticed it. Yeah. But um, he addressed the Windows 7. He said there's also some privacy still compromised on Windows 7 as well. Yeah. And um, I could definitely see that. I mean, that is kind of one of the penalties you have for having Windows. It's not as blatant it. and yeah, just all-encompassing as it is in Windows 10, though. Yeah. Like, I, I felt a lot more comfortable using Windows 7 than I do using Windows 10. Even though 7 was proprietary, like, it wasn't in the system options. Like, telemetry was not a section in the system options of Windows 7. Um, just Although the, I try to stay just with games, mostly on Windows, when yeah. I want to do something that can only be done on Windows. Yeah. Um, oh, Windows 10s isn't that like the version that's? It's the new RT. It's like yeah. Yeah. It's the one that you can't even. It's the one you can't even install custom stuff on, right? Right. It has to be from the store because it's only RT. Like it's not the same architecture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we should never update things. And even just the idea of having auto-updates as an option, I would love to have that as an option. Um, and Ubuntu, even on the desktop, has offered automatic updates for some security updates already um, for quite some time now. But my issue is on the server, yes, having a MySQL program automatically update sounds like a good idea. But once again, my issue is the mandatory part of it, where if I want to stay with an older version for any reason, and it doesn't matter what the reason is, like, you could say, oh, well, what's the re you know, there's no reason you'd want to stay with an older version of a thing. How about when Microsoft updated Skype and took away video calling as a feature? There, yeah, there's a reason right there. You might want to stick with yeah. an older How about, how about when Caden Live decided to port from QT4 to QT5 and also attempt refactoring, and then we <laughs> went from an entirely stable video editor to one that couldn't even play a video in the, the preview without crashing. Now, yeah. d d were you using Caden Live when this was happening? No, 
Okay. I was. But I could definitely, that's another example of how I could definitely ruin your workflow not having that level of control. And that's a desktop app. And that was a stable version that was in Ubuntu. It was in an Ubuntu release and it was in Kubuntu. So there was a period for like six months where you could grab the latest version of Ubuntu, not install any custom PPAs, and your Caden Live was going to be super unstable because they shipped an unstable version in the stable Ubuntu, which made no sense, but they did it. And. This is the problem if you give developers the job of doing the IT person's job, deciding what's stable and what's not, and what updates need to be installed. You're going to end up having things installed sooner than they should be, and that we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But that was a very real-world example. I didn't even think to bring that up when I was talking to these people online, but that actually affected me because I was in the middle of Displaced when that update happened. I had to end up compiling an older version of Caden Live, and then I stuck with that for months <laughs> Until I eventually, now I'm back to using the latest version of Caden Live because they fixed all those problems. But they decided to, yeah, it was a very big change from QT4 to QT5, and they did some refactoring at the same time. It was unusable. Um, like yeah. I said, I reinstalled several different distros, and every single one had this unstable version of Caden Live. But um, on quote unquote stable, but it was not usable. That's my problem with mandatory updates is that you're going to end up with, you know, Things like that happening. So, so yeah, the, these people online have been talking about, they kind of went back and forth. Yeah, we don't want to have updates disabled altogether. Let's try, and like you were just saying, let's try and minimize the impact instead. Let's keep updates mandatory, but let's make it so that it affects the user as little as possible. So, yeah, they were kind of talking about if we can't, let's just say they, they were making the, the arbitrary decision, we're going to make updates still mandatory but let's try and make it affect our users as little as possible so they were talking to this developer this developer was telling them well sometimes my app is in the middle of a task I don't want it to restart in the middle of that um, or then of course sometimes you've got just um, if your machine is in the middle of a mission critical task even if the app itself isn't working you don't want to be restarting like components on the machine um, somebody talked about the rocket.chat snap and this is another this is another example that affected me because somebody had their rocket chat server go down um, every day at a certain time when it was installing an update um, and rocket chat doesn't update that often so that's not a huge problem normally except for there's sometimes they release updates a couple days in a row because they'll tend to release one big update and then like a bug fix and a bug fix and a bug fix but um, but after I switched Rocket Chat to Snap, I had an update that required manual intervention because it failed the automatic update. And all I had to do was Snap revert to the old version and then Snap update to the new version manually, and then it worked. But just the automatic portion of it failed, and my Rocket Chat server was down. So yeah, of course that didn't kill Nerd on the Street, and Nerd on the Street's not entirely, you know, big budget company anyway, but that happened. That was a real thing that happened. But this person also, uh, we've had several users of the Rocket Dot Chat uh, Snap ask for this as well. This is one of the Rocket Chat developers speaking, um, saying, "Hey, we want the ability to turn off automatic updates. Some of our users have asked for this, and um, I can definitely understand where the Snap Teep is coming from. And that's what everyone says. You know, I understand where you're coming from, and even I have to say that I know where they're coming from. But, um." Yeah, by default, snaps can unmount the previous snap version before mounting and then starting the new version, which means downtime if it's a server component. And then if it's a network service, you can't start the second service before the first one because you'd have a, a port binding conflict. 
Um, and of course, there's ways to like script it so that there's very little downtime, even just uh, have, have a second of downtime if you want to get really nitty-gritty into the scripting of it um, and optimize that. But this Rocket Chat developer is saying, our users have told us they want that option, and they've been telling their users, Rocket Chat has been telling their users, um, that if you want that level of, level of control, go with the manual route, don't use snaps, because snaps aren't designed for that right now. And I think that is kind of what Snap developers are saying, too, is if you want that much control, don't use our product, is what Snaps are saying right now. And we'll get down a little bit further in the page in a moment. I mean, that is an understandable thing to say. I mean, technically, they have the right to say that, as long as they're just not trying to become, like, some major standard that then has no alternatives. The problem is, no yeah, the problem is that it's Ubuntu's premier package like they're trying to replace apt with snaps is what they're trying oh. to do and so and now you're offering way less control yeah and then it's like it, it, they're they're competing canonical right now is backing snaps red hat is backing flat pack and fedora is backing flat pack ubuntu is backing snaps so it, that's the competition right now is snaps flat packs who's gonna win out the the standard war is what this is right now we've got yeah. two for now one of those might die out eventually just like we had Wayland and Mir, and Mir went away. Um, you know, Snaps could very well win this one because Snaps are popular, but flat packs, I, I haven't had as much experience with them. Random Dude asks in the chat room, yesterday you were talking about AppImage. Is it similar to flat pack and Snaps? Yes, it's similar. The difference with AppImage is that there's not a package manager. Uh, and I talked to Richard about this last week. Snaps and flat packs, you have to have an underlying dependency on your system that pulls in the package, the Snap package or the flat pack package and um, sets everything up. With an app image, first of all, it's not tied to a specific vendor. You don't have Ubuntu trying to push app images. You don't have Fedora trying to push app images. It's just a standard. Anyone's welcome to use it. And then app images, there's no underlying package manager. There's no dependency. It will run on any Linux system because all that it does is it hooks into your, your directories. It puts some links in place to the app image itself. And it's one file that contains all the dependencies, um, so that theoretically you should be able to run an app image on any Linux system. Now, it didn't work that way last week on our episode, but, you know, that was an unrelated yeah. issue, I think. I mean, I like the idea of the portability, for yeah. sure. Yeah. The idea that your settings are saved inside the app image itself when you change things. And if you get used to a certain workflow or experience, you can copy that to a flash drive and just move it to your other system, and yeah. everything stays perfectly, like, portable and in sync. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's what app images are. Getting back to snaps, yeah, the the original person who started this forum thread was talking about some possible ways to bypass the snap automatic updates. For instance, filtering out the update domain on their router. Um, but of course, they don't want to do that because that's going to be disabling some other snap features as well, and it could cause other issues in the future. Um, and then eventually, the snap developers relented. They said, all right. So maybe we shouldn't be forcing updates every single day. Maybe that was a little heavy-handed. So what we'll do is, this is, this is the, the terms basically they laid out. They said, all right, we see your point. How about this? Refreshes may be scheduled at an arbitrary weekday and time within the month. Refreshes may be deferred for up to another month so that missed windows and rescheduling may happen without strange side effects. For example, if it was scheduled for the first day and then gets scheduled for the end of the month just before it happens, there may effectively be a two-month window without refreshes. If the system remains out of date after the two-month window, the system will start attempting to refresh out of the window. 
So let's say that you've got your schedule set up and then it misses twice. Then it says, all right, well, screw your schedule. You're too out of date. We're just going <laughs> to update no matter what. That's what they're doing. And then that maximum window is reset every time the system is refreshed. So out-of-band updates may perform in a convenient maintenance window. So, yeah, what they're saying is that we will respect your update schedule. If you're an IT person and you want to update everything on Saturday when everyone's away from the office, we'll let you do that. However, say something goes down on Saturday or something breaks and then that gets delayed more than twice, then it's going to update whether you have a say in it or not. It's going to update whether you want it to or not. That is how they are setting snaps up right now. Um, yeah, and that is still... I still don't like that idea. That seems kind of questionable. Yeah. Uh, by the way, random dude in the chat room is asking about app images and sandboxing. I, you know what, random dude? I think you're right. Um, Richard and I don't. Richard, do you know anything about what snaps or flat packs do for uh, for sandboxing? No. I guess they must have some sandboxing system built. Into. Yeah, they they do. I mean, random dude in the chat room. I feel room. like a lot of stuff on Linux should is usually sandboxed. I mean, that's the way better way. Well, yeah. It's kind of the issue that Windows has in some ways. Ran random dude posted a quote, and I've actually read that exact same quote on Reddit, random dude. But just to secure as app images do not do anything about sandboxing. Flatpak and quote unquote Snappy do. By the way, it's not called Snappy. It's just called Snaps. Um, I've been corrected on that several times, and frankly, I'm tired of being corrected on that because the Ubuntu people <laughs> named their stuff wrong. They got that wrong. The people who named Snaps and Snappy did it incorrectly because everyone calls it Snappy, and then if I had showed up to this forum, now I'm about to get down to where I showed up in this forum post and I started talking to the developers, and they actually respected my like, what I had to say. They didn't agree with me, but they respected what I had to say and they talked to me. If I had come in there and called it Snappy, like Random Dude just did in his quote, they would have shut me down. They would have said, you don't know what you're talking about because you called it the wrong name. I've seen the developers do that to other people online. Gosh, I have read terrible. statements from the developers. You can't dismiss, like, a good idea just because someone called it the wrong term. Yes, like, that is semantics. That is the, de that's the definition of... I mean, your... you should correct them. You should correct yes, them. Yes, correct nice them way, and so then address their argument. Yeah. yeah, you don't just <laughs> particularly if it's a really valid point or argument. You can't just be like, "All oh, right, well, we don't want to respond to like, that, but we'll pick the one little thing." It's like correcting someone's grammar online. Like you can correct and someone's then not answering their point. <laughs> yeah, like if if they miss an apostrophe, point out they should have had an apostrophe. But you can't just say you missed an apostrophe, so your opinion doesn't matter because you're a degenerate. Uh, you can't do that. <sighs> Um, yeah, no, random dude, you were quoting someone. I understand. Random dude in our chat room is an intelligent human being. He knows that it's called Snap and not Snappy. Random dude, you're great. I understand that you know what's going on, but that person, the quote didn't. And, uh, and yeah, I just wanted to point that out that they completely handled that incorrectly because the KDE developers do this great. KDE developers, you know how it used to be, well, it used to just be called KDE and then they renamed it to Plasma. Five. It was KDE 3, KDE 4, Plasma 5. And KDE is the organization, but Plasma is the product. Um, and that's kind of confusing. What do you, I mean, do you think that was even necessary for them to do? Probably not. That would have been, yeah, simpler. But, that's kind of confusing to yeah. have a different name than the organization name. But... I mean, granted, we have Microsoft Windows and stuff like that, so it's not that hard to adapt to. But, but. Microsoft's a company. KDE is an organization yeah. that, that uh, their flagship product was... KDE and they just renamed it Plasma. Now there are still people to this day that call it KDE. Oh, I'm using, are you using GNOME or KDE? That kind of thing. The KDE developers don't get mad about it. 
they're okay. They don't even correct yeah. you if you call it the wrong thing. The KDE developers, and I've actually spoken personally, some of them have commented on some of my very popular videos about KDE Plasma. Um, they've commented and they've responded to other people's comments, and I have seen them say, we actually understand that it was a confusing name change, and it's going to take plenty of time for people to get used to, so we're okay with people calling it the old name because that's what people know it as, so that's fine. That's that's a perfect, that's a beautiful way to handle that. You know, if you want to rename, yeah. you can name your projects however you want, but if you're going to name it something confusing, don't get upset when people get it wrong. We're getting way out of out of what we're trying to talk about here. Yeah. Um, the original point. Well, this is this is all to make the episode longer, of course. It's all intentional, Richard. Don't you see? It's a master plan. Um, but yeah, so going down further in this this uh, here forum post, can you hear that thunder? I can, yeah. Okay, sorry. So I'm pretty sure the stream can. <laughs> sorry, sorry, stream. There's thunder. I cannot control the weather. Um, so yeah, would allowing the publisher, somebody asked, what if we allowed the publisher of the snap to define an update schedule? Um, so then the, the publisher could specify that an app is either to stay updated automatically or that the publisher has control over when snaps update. That got turned down, but let's see. I mean, in some ways, that might actually be a good idea for yeah. certain things, particularly if they know... And particularly if it's not just all their updates, but say they're stable ones or ones marked in a certain way and the developer knows and they, then they can update that update schedule depending on how their organization and their planning changes. Yeah. Actually, I kind of like that idea. For a moment there, it almost sounded like you're talking about different update paths where you got a stable and an unstable, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that actually is something that they said in this forum thread. Yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. We're going to do that. Yeah. Let's see. I didn't highlight this page, but... Um, but yeah, somebody somebody left a rather brass comment where they were talking about how, let's see, would you really want someone, let's say, people are saying, would you really want someone who updates their apps uh, once a month talking about, I think they wanted them to update more often than that mandatory. But yeah, this person, somebody came around earlier than me who was in favor of manual updating. And they said, they gave a very extreme example here. Let's see. I can't imagine an autopilot saying on a highway at 200 kilometers per hour, hey there, we haven't updated the system for two months, you deferred it 10 times, I give you no more chances, I'm going to download the core snap now over 4G, <laughs> update it, and reboot your vehicle. You'd better pray. Um, that, this, that was this person yeah, saying, you know, Canonical is, with, with their whole discontinuing Unity thing, it's clear that they're not invested as much in the desktop. And that might be where part of this, what they're not understanding about desktop users here is coming from. But Canonical really, you know, when they discontinue Unity, I didn't say that means they don't care about the desktop. But reading this forum post about snaps tells me that they might not care about the desktop as much as other things because they're clearly going for Internet of Things and servers. And, like, servers are the things that, you know, you don't remember to log into your server every two weeks and update it. it like Richard said, you know, if it's a VPS, you don't update that yeah. all the time. If it's a... It's certainly a good idea to have some system to automatically do that in place. Internet of Things articles, or Internet of Things devices great usage for auto updates because like if you've got a coffee maker with linux and you've got a toaster with linux and you've got a microwave with linux and a fridge with linux and a tv with linux you know nobody has time to update all of that so yeah enable auto updates yeah. on those things and that's what kind of the worst that 
the worst you have to hold off when you're making your coffee for 20 seconds right. while it reboots. And but <laughs> yeah. but the thing is with those is that if you don't update them, then you end up with botnets and whatnot. We've already had that happening. Yeah. Internet of Things is. I mean, I was. Internet of Things is. I remember the day that happened back in 20 like 16 at the end of it, like yeah, November. I remember that. That was a big issue. It like was. a whole bunch of websites went down. I yep. And I looked up what was going on. That was fun. Um, and yeah, so that's the kind of thing, like, I, that thing that happened in 2016 with the botnet of Internet of Things devices, that's what Canonical's trying to prevent with this. But, that is Internet of Things devices, I'm talking about my desktop computer, that I log into and use and update manually myself. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, but yeah, this person's saying, you know, if people are gonna build connected devices, like cars and planes and rocket ships out of, you know, if the, if the Star Trek Enterprise is going to be running Ubuntu, you don't want that turning off in the middle of a fight, yeah. because you need your weapons in the middle of a fight, you know? So, this person's saying, the Canonical... That would be an entertaining episode. <laughs> yeah, Canonical, basically, they're saying Canonical should decide, uh, I'll, I'll quote them, so it's not me saying this. Generally speaking, Canonical should decide what it wants Ubuntu Core to be. A platform to create toys for children, or a platform for real stuff. Industrial medical automotive. Um, now that is a that is a harsh way of putting it. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that anything non-mission critical should be classified as toys, but, and I wouldn't say Although that, that was like the most abused Internet of Things devices were like toys that had barely any security that no one ever even thought of stuff. Yeah, but and um, that's a huge privacy issue as well. Yeah, I that person was very very. They, they, they were very strong with their statement. And so, of course, the developer says there's a, a rich spectrum of real applications and each of them with different requirements, implying that all the, the um, examples this person gave were not real. Uh, many industrial devices can easily be updated and rebooted at predictable times, the developer says, the developer of Snap says, and some toys will, in fact, require strictly predictable refresh routines. And, um, yeah, and some applications... In some appliances, updating at reboot can make sense. In others, it's better to force a reboot and ensure safety sooner. And uh, we're well, that's why I think it gets back to the application having a separate kind of setting for each application, or like at least being stated by the developer or yeah. something. I mean, I feel like that's a much better idea than having one universal thing for everything. And I, you don't want everything to necessarily function the same way on it. Yeah, and even though those features aren't implemented yet, I think the Snap developers ultimately agree with what you're saying right now, is that the developers of the programs should have control over that, but the developers of the, the, the users of the programs should not have control over that, is what the developers are saying of Snaps. Now, here's where I come in down here. And I say, I started off by asking the question, what if I'm a desktop user who just wants to feel like I have control over my computer? And I explained the thing with Arch and how I switched to KDE Neon, and I explained how it sucks that all my programs are a year old now. Um, and I explained how I really would love to use Snaps because I love the security implications, I love the, the updatability, but I just can't do the automatic updates, that's not working for me. Um, I said that. And I was surprised when the developer did not just blow me off like they did the other person, but the developer actually responded to me, typed out a thing that said, you're clearly a bit frustrated about this. I'd love to hear about why you don't want automatic updates. Um, and they told me some of the things they're working on. Tracks, which will enable software publishers to only force updates on critical issues. Epochs, which introduce stepped upgrades, carefully scheduled upgrades, health checks, which allow ensuring your revision is safe to update before it's completed. Uh, so all these things they're adding in to make automatic updates safer. So yeah, and they, they said, sounds like this is a problem you're also very interested in, so your contributions and opinions around improvements would be appreciated. 
And uh, yeah, they also said, we'll understand if your personal priorities and preferences take you elsewhere, which they have taken me right back to Arch. But uh, <laughs> I back when I was still using Ubuntu for a little bit, um, somebody else commented in. This was another just another user that commented. Just to add my two cents here, even though it's uncomfortable for us to have auto-updates enabled without an off switch, I believe it's the right way to go. And then they, they, uh, they expressed a concern with cellular devices with capped data limits. Like if you're going to be using an Ubuntu phone, even though they discontinued those, say you're going to make one anyway, uh, you don't want that always updating. Or if you're using a mobile hotspot, you don't want your snaps updating over your mobile hotspot. So this person's asking about ways to um, turn off updates for those things. And he kind of got, got not super well received with those because it's once again not updating and they just want you to update basically but i don't like that idea even if it's uncomfortable for us to to have no off switch it's the right way to go like where does that idea come from how about how about yeah, i don't know i feel like that's one of the way one of the many reasons people like often like ubuntu and linux in general over say microsoft because i mean when i said i was fine with that earlier i was fine with microsoft because i don't expect that much freedom out of micro like out of windows but i expect a lot higher degree of freedom out of something that's linux and open yeah. source and to see that kind of the people want to just take that away from us i don't know it seems a little frustrating yeah i, I understand there obviously should be defaults and there should be controls and you should be able to change things and maybe by default they can auto update but if there's a specific thing you need you definitely want to have that flexibility to people will stay on an older version, especially like what you were saying with Caden Live, or yeah. especially when you know what you're doing, and to not offer that at all seems a little crazy. Yeah, and the, the idea ever that you should have to force yourself to do anything uncomfortable, really, your computer, you, you know, the whole thing with, you know, random dude just name-dropped RMS in the, in the chat room, you know, um, the whole Libre software movement, it's about users controlling their computers. Computers do not control you. You control the computer. Um, and I talked about during the five-year live stream that we did a few weeks back that I don't use Windows, not because Windows works worse, because sometimes Windows does work better than Linux. I don't use Windows because it makes me feel uncomfortable to have that running on my system, to have my files in that system. And yeah, I, I use Linux because it makes me more comfortable. So why should I be told to deal with being uncomfortable for better security that the developers want? Uh, I really did not like that that comment at all. Um, yeah, I mean, particularly, I understand defaults being to auto-update, but if yeah. you know what you're doing, if there's a specific legitimate reason, you should definitely have that control. And you should, I mean, everyone should be provided that control as well, as long as they have just a few commands and terminal and be able to change the preferences here and there. Yeah. Because I assume if you're running that, you have a legitimate reason for it. Right. The developers don't assume that. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk about it some more here. So my next response said... You know, I, I said thank you for your serious response there, and then I explained my whole um, my rocket chat thing. And here's when I first found out that Snaps auto updated. This was before I had a problem with rocket chat updating. This was just when I was considering should I put rocket chat on Snap or should I leave it manually installed. This was the first thing that came to my mind was if I've got rocket chat installed. Now the reasons why you might use rocket chat it's a self-hosted, open source chat program the reasons you might yeah, use I mean huh it's a good alternative slack really right yes it but is, is it's very similar to slack but it's self-hosted and it is uh open source now the reason you would self-host something like that like a chat app why do you think that would be so um, definitely privacy yeah i mean it's now exactly. you on your system yeah and if, if you're also 
you control it. Right. If it's running on your system and you control it, you want to control it completely. You don't want to be at the mercy of a self-updater that can take down your site yeah. randomly in the middle of the day when you're actually using it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was on Microsoft. I was on Windows the other day, and Skype just updates while I'm in a call with someone. It just closes the call, hangs up, and just closes the Skype window and says, please wait, Skype is currently updating. And I mean, it took like 40 seconds, so it wasn't that long, and reopened Skype. But I was talking to someone. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't yeah. just override what I'm currently doing. Right. I mean, going back to you controlling the computer versus the computer controlling you, that's that's right there, the computer controlling your life, and you yeah. <laughs> just being like, oh, I had to update, so I apparently just, like, end the call. <laughs> All right, so the reason you would use Rocket Chat is because of privacy is is a big reason and when you talk about privacy like you start getting into murky waters because what do you need privacy for now the best safest answer to that is like corporate secrets you know trade secrets um obviously in creative companies creative companies have to do a lot to make sure that their stuff that they're working on isn't leaked um you know when you might notice in rocket chat that the rolling release room is a private group until you yeah. until you came onto the server, actually all of the rooms except for a select few were open groups that anyone could join. Now I it's not you. I was I was not distrusting of you, but now we've got like Mark on the server, we've got you, we've got Stephanie, we've got people from Extra Life last year who have nothing to do with any of our productions except for Extra Life. Everyone was just on the server and they had access to all of our show information. And I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't be giving everyone access to all the shows. Maybe Richard doesn't need access to Displaced. He just needs access to Rolling Release right now. So I went yeah. ahead and made everything private, except for like the general and off-topic. But yeah, that, once again, nothing against you. It's just so that I don't have to worry about that in the future when I'm adding more people. But yeah, that like if you're a creative company, you don't want you know you don't want spoilers being leaked by your employees. If you are a technology company, you don't want secret like blueprints and crap getting leaked, right? Uh, yeah. If you're Microsoft, you don't want your source code getting leaked. So there are lots of like it did. There, like it <laughs> did. Just a while back. Yes, and there are lots of corporate reasons in America. You know, in the United States, we're, we like our corporations here in the United States. You know, elsewhere in the world, they might not like their corporations keeping secrets as much. Here in the United States, we generally trust corporations more than we do the government. Uh, at least I personally do. Like with Google and everything, you know, I give more information to them than I trust the government holding. So yeah, there's the the most legitimate thing to say if someone asks you, why do you need privacy if you're not breaking the law, if you're not doing anything wrong, uh, you know, this is, is kind of getting into political stuff, but you know, why not just give the government all your information? Why not just upload everything and have everything always connected? If you're not doing anything wrong, um, the go-to answer is corporate secrets if you don't actually want to get into a philosophical and political discussion. Yeah. Um, of course, which I could, but uh, which, I don't think we, could. we need to on this. But, but. <laughs> um, but yeah, then there are, of course, other less, less uh, open reasons you might want privacy. But no matter what your reason is, privacy exists, and I generally support it. I think a lot of open source people generally support it. And Richard, I'm sorry if I'm triggering you right now and you're having to hold back. Like, if you completely disagree with me, for all we know, oh, no, Richard, Richard's actually, like a, a hardcore <laughs> communist, and he actually is planning to assassinate <laughs> me right now. Um, but yeah. Uh, no, actually, I totally agree with privacy, okay, but I don't think we good. need to get on a whole rant. No, we there. don't. We don't. But yeah, so that's why generally you would use Rocket Chat, other than like. I don't know. Yeah, that's why you'd use Rocket Chat. Now, here's what I thought when I found out Snap's going to auto-update. So I'm using Rocket Chat because I want everything on my server. It's self-hosted, so it's I have the data, and then it's open source, 
so I know there's no back door. Now, there's another program that we also use here at Northern Street called File Run. And have you heard of it? No. All right, have you heard of NextCloud or OwnCloud? Oh, yes, I've heard of both those. File Run is like those, except it works a lot better, and it's proprietary. But it is self-hosted, but it's proprietary. So you've got the data, but you don't actually know that there's not a backdoor there because you can't see yeah. the code. Or even a bug that could end up exposing or you, yeah. the data if someone like, yeah. wanted to get a backdoor hack it. So it's a, like it's a two source is certainly better yeah. for that. If it's open source, but you're keeping it on like a remote server that somebody else controls anyway, you know that your code is trustable, but you're having your data hosted elsewhere. If it's closed source, but it's self-hosted, yes, you've got the data, but you don't actually know that other people can't get in. It needs to be both. It needs to be self-hosted and open source for it to actually be private and secure. Um, and Rocket Chat is both. And up to date, though, to be fair, most of the time. <laughs> I mean, like, well, obviously a lot of bugs, say the Heartbleed one was found in, it, or the backdoor was found in an open source thing, and there yeah. could have been people who know that about it and exploited it and didn't share it. If you're talking about unintentional things, keeping it up to date, yes. Yeah. But here's an, here's an idea. So we're talking about the developer gets to publish an update, and it gets pushed to my computer without my consent, right? Yes. What's to stop the developer... Let's say that tomorrow, the United States government, the FBI decides Jacob Coppin's a threat. So then they need to get into my Rocket Chat server because clearly me and Richard are exchanging trade secrets in our Rocket Chat server here. Uh, as I was trying to put on the screen to demonstrate, um, clearly, you know, we're, we're planning all kinds of nefarious plots in this chat room and we are doing no good things. So then the government wants in. So then what if they go to the Rocket Chat developers? either force or convince the Rocket Chat developers to help them, and then the Rocket Chat developers publish an update either to all Rocket Chat instances or somehow just to mine that includes a backdoor. It gets auto-updated within a day, and then now they've got a backdoor, and I had no way to stop that because it auto-updated and I couldn't not have an update. Like... Yeah, I can definitely see. That's... I, at a certain way, that's an, a, like... That's an extreme example, but it's certainly an issue. Yeah, it, it is an extreme example. If that happened... What do you mean? Who's to stop someone, particularly and even on open source projects, who's to say you just hide some code somewhere in it? Yeah. I mean, people don't necessarily review every piece of code that goes into a pull request, and <laughs> yeah. that gets accepted, and then that gets put into an open source product, and now you're the only person who knows it, or you intentionally put a bug like Heartbleed was that could do that. And that's a more likely scenario. You know, the the people online kind of dismiss my Rocket Chat example as not being practical. Um, and I, I said when I said that, it, it was part of my post that um, I understand that the Rocket Chat developers would be hard-pressed to find a reason to publish such an update and that doing so would cause all sorts of other problems I'm not addressing. Uh, because obviously if they published that to other people's servers, people would realize that there would be a whole... You know, it would be a whole deal if that actually happened. But the problem is that, yes, it would be a whole deal. There would be fallout. There would be other things that happened. But it's technologically possible for that to happen. And, you know, that was my that was part of my argument for why we shouldn't have automatic updates forced. Yes, have them by default. Because if you're never going to update your Rocket Chat, have it update, you know, automatically yeah. so you don't have or to worry about it. But you don't it, have to manage it. I had it manually installed before, and I was updating I checked every week 
you know, my Saturday nights after we get done with this show, I'm going to update my computer because I'm a nerd and that's what I enjoy doing is, you know, I, you know, on Arch, I can update most things by doing Pacman-SYU, but for AUR packages such as Telegram, Discord, I have to actually do manual things to get those to update, but I am happy to do that because I like Arch and it's fun for me. But um, I was already updating Rocket Chat. So you don't need to force me to update. I was already updating, and now you're just not giving me the option not to. And the people, this is what really pissed me off here, was we went back and forth a couple more times. I won't go through our entire conversation, but basically the person ended up, I ended up saying, summarizing my issues here, um, here's how things used to work. Developer publishes an update. I update when I'm comfortable updating. And then basically what people were telling me in this thread were, oh, well, you just need to make a schedule that delays the update for the maximum amount of one month, and then whenever you're comfortable updating within that month, since you say you're always up to date anyway, then you can install the update manually. And I said, that's adding a whole lot more work for me, and it's not affecting my update schedule at all. And would you, like, is that a good summary of what this is doing? If, if let's say for one, that in practice, no, I never hold an update for more than a month intentionally. Um, it, yeah. I don't actually read the source code well, for I mean, most of the programs yeah. on my computer. I use open source software because it makes me feel more comfortable. I don't actually read the code. I'm not a developer. You know? Yeah, you're trusting that to the people who are on the team and other people in general. And I am I mean, trusting... that is the whole idea of open source is that with that we can do more audits and security. Yeah. It should be in general much safer. I'm trusting that nobody is going to be audacious enough to publish an exploit in an open source project because it's like putting it out there for everyone to see. Nobody would be stupid enough to do that. And if you are, hopefully somebody else will catch it. And that's yeah. that, that's why I feel more comfortable using open source, not because I personally read the code. So in effect, yes, I, I always update within like two weeks of when a new version comes out. The, the maximum amount of a month that they're telling me they're going to give, yes, that would in practice solve it wouldn't really solve my problem because my problem isn't that I'm actually reviewing the source code. My problem is that I'm being forced to install the update. It's just a philosophical thing that I'm not willing to give up that control on my computer. Is th Now, does that, would you be willing to do this? Am I crazy here? Um, no, I can definitely see your point here. But Maybe I mean, in I could... small, uh, certain small applications I would. For example, MySQL is something that's already pretty much almost mostly proprietary yeah. with the way they've gone in the fork yeah. for MariaDB. So I could see it in certain situations being fine, but overall I don't like the idea of something that forces you becoming the standard. And since they are trying to make this the standard, or at least one of the rivals to become the standard, that certainly seems like an issue. I mean, it, like on Microsoft, I don't put most of my stuff, I just keep games, that's it. Yeah. But on Linux, I want to have that kind of bit of security. And there will be people... And that's certainly flexibility and customizability that yeah. you can't really get on Windows. And there will be people... I guess I have different standards for Microsoft versus Linux. Right. And so yeah. it's kind of frustrating to see this happen. And honestly, I have different standards for Ubuntu versus Arch. Like, Ubuntu was already not super... They were already sending your Dash searches to Amazon years ago. Um, and they didn't stop that even after they said they would stop it several times. Canonical's not scot-free in the record department. But they... Yeah. Where was I going? Right, there will be people who say they're okay with the auto-updates. And 
Just like there are people who say that they're okay with the NSA collecting all information happening on the internet. There are, there are people who say, I'm doing nothing wrong, I trust the developers, I like auto-updates being forced. And, you know, my whole thing is if you want auto-updates, have that as an option. That's a, that's a great thing if you can have auto-updates that don't affect anything. But if you're going to tell me I have to use them, that's going to make me not want to use them. Like, if, this, if yeah. it was optional, tell you what, Richard... If, if it was optional to have auto-updates, I probably would have turned them on. You know? Yeah. Like, I I but wouldn't be arguing it, against yeah. it right now. If it was... If they had just said, they're on by default, you can turn it off with this command. I, I would have been too lazy to turn that off. I would have left it on. I would have said, sweet, all my stuff updates all the time. But it's the fact that they are telling me, just like with proprietary software, if you tell me, no, you can't see the source code, I think you're hiding something from that. And if you tell me, no, you can't hold this update back, you know, just like with open source code, I'm not going to read the code, but if you tell me I can't have it, that's the problem. I'm not going to not update, but if you tell me I have to, now I'm going to do everything I can to not update. So basically, uh, at the end of the day here, they ended up saying, I they quoted, they quoted one specific piece of my, and they ended up editing their own response because it didn't contribute to the topic. They did not edit any of mine, but only their own. Um, they quoted me just a little bit of what I said. If I'm using a scheduling feature to delay auto-updates to the maximum length, but I'm obviously going to want to update sooner than that in practice, the entire auto-update feature is adding work for me while not affecting my final update schedule at all. So why doesn't the system just allow me to turn off auto-updates? Developer snarkly responds, I'm glad to hear the automatic update won't, in fact, be a problem for you in practice. <laughs> this is the key thing we want to ensure. And I responded, it's going to be a problem for me in practice because in practice, I'm not going to use it. But, um... Oh, well, that was a pretty good comeback. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's true, you know? Like, I, I'm back on Arch this week because I decided, even though I really wanted to help the KDE developers out, they fixed the problem I was having anyway. So it's not crashing anymore and um it's not often that i actually want to submit a crash report and when i do it's for like a like caden live i've submitted helpful crash reports for that in the past it's just like the complicated stuff like plasma and kwin that i can't compile that because it's got so many dependencies that also i have to compile with debugging enabled i'm back on arch because arch it's it's not even all about control with Arch. Arch is about simplicity, but it, you know, I don't have to update until I want to update. And when I do, I get all the updates available with Arch. Unlike Ubuntu, which is a year out of date, or Snaps, where I have to be right up to date, Arch actually lets me decide when to update. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I definitely agree with that philosophy the most, and I think that's probably what should agree with yeah. most. I feel like most of the people in the open source community should agree with that. I don't know why people have an issue with it quite as much. Something scary. At least having the option. It's yeah. Like that's the whole point is you should have the option. You shouldn't. I mean, I can see how there are so many great applications for having auto updates on certain things, particularly on a rolling schedule. I can see that definitely being important. Yeah. Although I think you would still want to have maybe a little finer control per program because there might be some things mm -hmm. that aren't always releasing a stable build, or there might be some stuff that actually has bugs when they release their quote stable build. Right. Which but they say they I can see it definitely being useful, but again, it should this should be an option, right. not. And not yeah, required. to be to be fair to that specific, 
you know, that kind of, oh, we should have finer control. They're all about giving that finer control as long as the auto updates stay turned on. They will give you more control over specific programs, updating and other ones being held back another week. They'll give you specific, like they've added tracks already. They will give you the ability to do things like that, but they won't give you the ability to turn it off altogether. And um, yeah, I, I posted something further back behind where it said, uh, they, I said, developers don't trust users to update their computers um, you know, I trust the developers. Why don't the developers trust me? And this person was kind of agreeing with me with that. Somebody down here said something really kind of scary for me personally. And this is where I kind of, I want to kind of end off this, this topic with somebody, this person quoted this other person saying it doesn't trust its users. This person says this view is way too narrow. What snap tries to do is take away any need for having to care about updates by improving the package environment in a way that software can take care of itself, can do self tests can automatically roll back to the last working version. The only way to achieve security of software is to keep it with the least amount of vulnerabilities by keeping it updated in the timeliest possible manner. Uh, the only factor that breaks this principle is human intervention. Let's take a look at a typical sysadmin today. When an upgrade comes in, he will hold it back and run a bunch of tests. If these tests succeed, he will check for the best time to apply the update to all users and roll it out. Or perhaps he is doing staged updates and gives to, to a small subset of users first. And I like to interject that when you do that, that's because you're sysadmin and you know your organization, you know your users, and you know what's going to work best for them. That's why yeah. sysadmins do that. And then this person continues, now imagine the package management actually offers to have those tests included in the package by upstream, which means included by the developers. The developers of your program will write your tests for you. So admins can submit their use case tests to be shipped and run automatically by the package management. It also has a scheduling feature and rollout control. What Snappy tries to do is not take away trust from anyone, this is someone else speaking, but improve and encourage automation by providing an easy environment for it. If there is any trust, and this is, this is a true statement they're about to say, but it completely goes with my point. If there is any trust shifted around, it is actually shifted towards developers and their ability to ship good tests. And yes, that's what I'm saying is that this is putting more, more on me to trust the developers and less on the developers to trust me. That's what I was saying in the first place. The yeah. final target is completely self-maintained machines through automation. The developers working on this are way too excited about the technical aspects and possibilities of this to actually think about trust or distrust or any other political topics. Winky face. So that's that person telling me that um, that they personally don't care about this issue because they view it as too philosophical and not practical enough, which is what every single person who defends proprietary software says. That's what we say about <laughs> Windows, is that, oh, why do you care that it's not open source? It works better than Linux, so why don't you use it? I use Linux because it makes me feel more comfortable, not because it works better. And I, I use Arch because it makes me feel more comfortable, not because it works better than Snaps. But what this person's talking about here, if we, I just want to, you know, let's take a look at a typical sysadmin today talking about the tests they do. Now imagine that the developers are actually putting those tests in. These Snap developers, it hit me what they're, they think they're trying to do. These Snap developers are trying to replace IT people with themselves. Yeah. They are trying yeah. to eliminate IT the workers. The sysadmin job, essentially. They're trying to eliminate that entire layer, that entire field of sysadmins, where your entire job is to take the crazy stuff your developers give you and the crazy needs of your users and try and match it all together so that the users are happy with what the developers are giving them. That's what a sysadmin needs to do, in essence. 
and this person thinks so they're trying to have a machine manage it they're trying to they're trying to make it so the developers do the job the sysadmins are currently doing for the users what do you think about that yeah. as a developer what do you think as about a developer that? i don't even agree with that because i feel like first of all I understand writing, I mean, tests is pretty important, but when I think of t um, tests and stereotypical code, you write tests for each of your methods and for each of the different things. You don't write tests for all the ways your program could interact with other programs. And I mean, as that's kind of the job of a system admin to then be like, well, these two programs actually after this update have a problem with each other. So I'm not gonna update this one. I'm gonna keep this one back. And then I'm gonna submit to the developer to say, um, can you eventually fix that? I don't think you can have a sysadmin in their case, submit all the possible use cases. And then I don't feel it's my responsibility to have to run or to write automated tests for every single use case for every single application interacting with every other single one, mm -hmm. and then have that in a like an environment where it can simulate that before I push my code out. Yeah. At a certain point, I should push out code that fixes bugs and that adds new features, but that makes it solely work on its own. And if there's some issue where it clearly doesn't work with something else, then someone will bring that to my attention and I will try and maybe simulate that specific one and fix it. Yeah. But the idea that somehow a machine uh, as well as the developers can somehow manage this together instead of this being an actual job seems very questionable to me. Yeah. And on the other side of that, as someone going to school for IT right now, to me, I don't, you know, with all due respect to developers, developers make what we do possible. Like, I don't know how any of the, like, it's crazy, the Linux kernel and KDE project and everything they make, their desktop environment, everything it's amazing what developers do they have made it possible for us to do so much with computers they don't know your specific users if you're a system administrator for a company somebody's hiring you um to know your users and to know what's best for your users and those developers know what's best for their program just like richard said they don't know what different programs are interacting they also don't know you know that the, this user always always does this crazy thing that causes problems or this user has these special preferences or these special needs that cause problems and you know i think that if developers think that they can get rid of it as a layer it's kind of like the cloud kind of because you're taking away self-managed servers with the cloud and you're putting things directly up I don't know. You're you're giving more Straight, control yeah. higher up in the chain to where like it used to be IT people would actually set servers up. Now you've got IT people just setting up these cloud software that a different company is managing. This is outsourcing another piece of it, which is the the updating of the apps. Um, so it's kind of similar in that way. But I think that developers, if they think that they can actually eliminate the need for IT people by making their program, their software so good it's so flawless this doesn't need it people we have made updates so flawless this doesn't need it people it better I think be that's a flawless. premise yeah it's and there's no such thing as flawless there's yeah. always going i think to be... it's unachievable and you're going to ruin other people's yeah. day that's saying by that you're ruining the user's experience on the other end they're looking for perfection there's they're saying they are going to perfect software updates because if software updates were perfect then yes it people would not be needed if software updates and software itself was all perfect of course we wouldn't need it people um yeah that's not a standard i want to have my code held to. yeah it's 
it's not going to be perfect, so it kind of concerns me that the Snap developers think that they're achieving perfection by taking away choice from their users. Um, so that's my thoughts on that. Flatpak, by the way, no automatic updates. You just have to run the update command. If you want to script it to run every day, you're welcome to do that. As of right now, I don't think... Let's see. But yeah, Flatpak certainly does not force automatic updates. Um... No, you just have to run flatpak-update to update all your flatpak commands. So yeah, that's what Red Hat's doing. And Red Hat, by the way, is the much larger company, much more profitable company. Um, so I'm kind of behind them on this specific issue. But yeah, um, that's so a big... ultimately maybe it would be best that none of the, not, neither of the win the standards war and so that we have two options. Yeah, it'd be great to have several options. The, yeah... I guess, yeah. The problem Particularly with that is... when they both seem to have a different idea of how to approach this problem. And, I, and I'd like, it's a good idea not just to have options that say a program that might be messed up, but to have the options in just the entire philosophy behind it. Yeah. Part of the problem is that you can install Flatpak on Ubuntu. You can install Snaps on Fedora. Um, and maybe that's not a problem. Maybe, you know what? You might be right. That might be a good thing because that means no matter what distro you're on, like just because you're using Ubuntu doesn't mean you have to have forced upgrades. And just because you're using Fedora doesn't mean you can't have forced upgrades. It's up to you to decide what package uh, standard you want to use. I guess that's true, yeah. And then there's app images, which are just on their own. Use them if you want to. They're great. Uh, portable. But of, they don't have sandboxing, guys, so we can't use those. Not, not an option. Uh, but they are portable. But yeah, um, that that's my my thoughts on container. that. Hey, me and Richard have talked a lot about this this week. And if you have thoughts on this, you viewers, uh, first of all, share this around. Share this video with people. I know we we're tacking this on to the end of some news. Hopefully, our news segment was good enough. People will stick around for the feature this week. But um, yeah, if you have thoughts on this. NerdOnTheStreet.com, once again, we have forums. Start a forum topic. I don't even care which category it goes in. You know, there's a rolling release topic. There's a general top or category. There's a, a technology category. Start up a forum thread anywhere if you want to talk about this. Or, of course, you can just leave comments down below. And, uh, yeah, let us know what you think of all this. Do you think that automatic updates are a good thing? Do you think that forced automatic updates are a good thing? Very big difference there. And, uh, yeah, what do you think about snaps, flat packs, app images, um, or do you just want to use Arch so that you can have one package manager manage all your applications? Perfectly fine. Um, let us know down in the comments. For now, though, that is going to be everything for this week. Thank you so much to Richard for showing up this week. You've been great. Uh, thanks to Random Dude for showing up in the chat room. I know you only caught the end of the show, but hopefully you had some fun in there watching us. And, uh, yeah, we'll be right back here next week one way or the other. So, yeah, for now, that's everything I got. Richard, where should people go if they want more of you throughout the week? Um, at Glorf22 on Twitter. Um, you can check out my website, richardsprojects.net, and um, you can check out the current site I'm working on developing, kind of a network of sites for sharing things called Minecraft Media, and that's and then there'll be other sites. There's other sites that send us media, but for sharing things related to games. Cool, cool. So yeah, like I said, that's all for us from this week. Um, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>